Part 2 of Politics, a treatise on government by Aristotle, translated by William Ellis. Book 5, Chapter 1. We have now gone through those particulars we propose to speak of. It remains that we next consider from what causes and how alterations in government arise, and of what nature they are, and to what the destruction of each state is owing and also to what form any form of polity is most likely to shift into, and what are the means to be used for the general preservation of governments, as well as what are applicable to any particular state, and also of the remedies which are to be applied either to all in general, or to anyone considered separately, when they are in a state of corruption. And here we ought first to lay down this principle, that there are many governments, all of which approve of what is just and what is analogically equal, and yet have failed from attaining their unta, as we have already mentioned. Thus democracies have arisen from supposing that those who are equal in one thing are so in every other circumstance, as because they are equal in liberty, they are equal in everything else. And oligarchies, from supposing that those who are unequal in one thing are unequal in all. That when men are so in point of fortune, that inequality extends to everything else. Hence it follows that those who in some respects are equal with others think it right to endeavor to partake of inequality with them in everything. And those who are superior to others endeavor to get still more. And it is this more which is the inequality. Thus most states, though they have some notion of what is just, yet are almost totally wrong. And upon this account, when either party has not that share in the administration which answers to his expectations, he becomes seditious. But those who of all others have the greatest right to be so are the last that are. Namely, those who excel in virtue, for they alone can be called generally superior. There are, too, some persons of distinguished families who, because they are so, disdain to be on an equality with others, for those esteem themselves noble who boast of their ancestors' merit and fortune. These, to speak truth, are the origin and fountain from whence seditions arise. The alterations which men may propose to make in governments are two. For either they may change the state already established into some other, as when they propose to erect an oligarchy where there is a democracy, or a democracy, or free state, where there is an oligarchy, or an aristocracy from these, or those from that, or else, when they have no objection to the established government, which they like very well, but choose to have the sole management in it themselves, either in the hands of a few or one only. They will also raise commotions concerning the degree in which they would have the established power. As if, for instance, the government is an oligarchy, to have it more purely so, and in the same manner if it is a democracy, or else to have it less so. And in like manner, Whatever may be the nature of the government, 
either to extend or contract its powers, or else to make some alterations in some parts of it, as to establish or abolish a particular magistracy, as some persons say Lysander endeavored to abolish the kingly power in Sparta, and Pausanias that of the Ephori. Thus in Epidamnus there was an alteration in one part of the constitution, for instead of the philarchy they established a senate. It is also necessary for all the magistrates at Athens to attend in the court of the Helicia when any new magistrate is created. The power of the Archon also in that state partakes of the nature of an oligarchy. Inequality is always the occasion of sedition, but not when those who are unequal are treated in a different manner correspondent to that inequality. Thus kingly power is unequal when exercised over equals. Upon the whole, those who aim after an equality are the cause of seditions. Equality is twofold, either in number or value. Equality in number is when two things contain the same pots or the same equity. Equality in value is by proportion as two exceeds one and three two by the same number thus by proportion four exceeds two, and two one in the same degree, for two is the same part of four that one is of two. That is to say, half. Now, all agree in what is absolutely and simply just. But, as we have already said, they dispute concerning proportionate value. For some persons, if they are equal in one respect, think themselves equal in all. Others, if they are superior in one thing, think they may claim the superiority in all. From whence chiefly arise two sorts of governments, a democracy and an oligarchy. For nobility and virtue are to be found only amongst a few, the contrary amongst the many. There being in no place a hundred of the first to be met with, but enough of the last everywhere. But to establish a government entirely upon either of these equalities is wrong, and this the example of those so established makes evident, for none of them have been stable. And for this reason, that it is impossible that whatever is wrong at the first and in its principles should not at last meet with a bad end for which reason in some things an equality of numbers ought to take place, in others an equality in value. However, a democracy is safer and less liable to sedition than an oligarchy. For in this latter it may arise from two causes, for either the few in power may conspire against each other or against the people, but in a democracy only one, namely, against the few who aim at exclusive power. But there is no instance worth speaking of, of a sedition of the people against themselves. Moreover, a government composed of men of moderate fortune comes much nearer to a democracy than an oligarchy, and is the safest of all such states. Chapter 2 since we are inquiring into the causes of seditions and revolutions in governments, we must begin entirely with the first principles from whence they arise. Now these, so to speak, 
are nearly three in number, which we must first distinguish in general from each other, and endeavor to show in what situation people are who begin a sedition, and for what causes, and thirdly, what are the beginnings of political troubles and mutual quarrels with each other. Now that cause which of all others most universally inclines men to desire to bring about a change in government is that which I have already mentioned. For those who aim at equality will be ever ready for sedition. If they see those whom they esteem their equals possess more than they do, as well as those also who are not content with equality but aim at superiority. If they think that while they deserve more than, they have only equal with or less than their inferiors. Now, what they aim at may be either just or unjust. Just when those who are inferior are seditious, that they may be equal. Unjust when those who are equal are so, that they may be superior. These, then, are the situations in which men will be seditious. The causes for which they will be so are profit and honor, and their contrary. For, to avoid dishonor or loss of fortune by malts, either on their own account or their friends, they will raise a commotion in the state. The original causes which dispose men to the things which I have mentioned are, taken in one manner, seven in number, in another they are more two of which are the same with those that have been already mentioned, but influencing in a different manner. For profit and hour shy men against each other, not to get the possession of them for themselves, which was what I just now supposed, but when they see others, some justly, others unjustly, engrossing them. The other cause is our haughtiness, fear, imminence, contempt, disproportionate increase in some part of the state. There are also other things which in a different manner will occasion revolutions in governments, as election intrigues, neglect, want of numbers, a too great dissimilarity of circumstances. Chapter 3. What influence ill treatment and profit have for this purpose? and how they may be the causes of sedition, is almost self-evident. For when the magistrates are haughty and endeavor to make greater profits than their office gives them, they not only occasion seditions amongst each other, but against the state also who gave them their power. And this their avarice has two objects, either private property or the property of the state. What influence honors have and how they may occasion sedition is evident enough. For those who are themselves honored while they see others honored will be ready for any disturbance. And these things are done unjustly when anyone is either honored or discarded contrary to their deserts, justly when they are according to them. Excessive honors are also a cause of sedition when one person or more are greater than the state and the power of the government can permit. For then a monarchy or a dynasty is usually established, on which account the ostracism was introduced in some places, as at Argos and Athens. 
Though it is better to guard against such excesses in the founding of a state, than when they have been permitted to take place, to correct them afterward. Those who have been guilty of crimes will be the cause of sedition through fear of punishment, as will those also who expect an injury that they may prevent, as was the case at Rhodes, when the nobles conspired against the people on account of the decrees they expected would pass against them. Contempt also is a cause of sedition and conspiracies, as in oligarchies, where there are many who have no share in the administration. The rich also even in democracies, despising the disorder and anarchy which will arise, hope to better themselves by the same means which happened at Thebes after the Battle of Enophita, where, in consequence of bad administration, the democracy was destroyed. As it was at Megara, where the power of the people was lost through anarchy and disorder. The same thing happened at Syracuse before the tyranny of Jelen, and at Rhodes there was the same sedition before the popular government was overthrown. Revolutions in state will also arise from a disproportionate increase. For as the body consists of many parts, it ought to increase proportion ably to preserve its symmetry which would otherwise be destroyed, as if the foot was to be four cubits long and the rest of the body but two palms. It might otherwise be changed into an animal of a different form, if it increased beyond proportion not only a quite weight, but also in disposition of pots. So also a city consists of pots, some of which may often increase without notice, as the number of poor in democracies and free states. They will also sometimes happen by accident, as at Tarentum, a little after the Median War, where so many of the nobles were killed in a battle by the Lepigi, that from a free state the government was turned into a democracy. And at Argos, where so many of the citizens were killed by Cleomenes the Spartan, that they were obliged to admit several husbandmen to the freedom of the state. And at Athens, through the unfortunate event of the infantry battles, the number of the nobles was reduced by the soldiers being chosen from the list of citizens in the Lacedaemonian wars. Revolutions also sometimes take place in a democracy, though seldomer. For where the rich grow numerous or properties increase, they become oligarchies or dynasties. Governments also sometimes alter without seditions by a combination of the meaner people, as at Hersia, for which purpose they changed the mode of election from votes to lots, and thus got themselves chosen. And by negligence, as when the citizens admit those who are not friends to the constitution into the chief offices of the state, which happened at Oris, when the oligarchy of the Archons was put an end to at the election of Heracleodorus, who changed that form of government into a democratic free state, by little and little, I mean by this, that very often great alterations silently take place in the form of government from peoples overlooking small matters. As at Ambracia, where the census was originally small, but at last became nothing at all, as if a little and nothing at all were nearly or entirely alike. 
that state also is liable to seditions which is composed of different nations, till their differences are blended together and undistinguishable. For as a city it cannot be composed of every multitude, so neither can it in every given time. For which reason all those republics which have hitherto been originally composed of different people or afterwards admitted their neighbors to the freedom of their city, have been most liable to revolutions. As when the Achaeans join with the Trezenians in founding Sybaris, for soon after, growing more powerful than the Trezenians, they expelled them from the city. From whence came the proverb of Sybarite wickedness, and again, disputes from a Lycos happened at Thurium between the Sybarites and those who had joined with them in building the city. For they assuming upon these, on account of the country being their own, were driven out, and at Byzantium the new citizens, being detected in plots against the state, were driven out of the city by force of arms. The Andesians also, having taken in those who were banished from Chios, afterwards did the same thing. And also the Zanclines, after having taken in the people of Samos, the Apollonites, in the Euxene Sea, having admitted their sojourners to the freedom of their city, were troubled with seditions. And the Syracusians, after the expulsion of their tyrants, having enrolled strangers and mercenaries amongst their citizens, quarreled with each other and came to an open rupture. And the people of Amphipolis, having taken in a colony of Chalcidians, were the greater part of them driven out of the city by them. Many persons occasion seditions in oligarchies because they think themselves ill-used in not sharing the honors of the state with their equals. As I have already mentioned, but in democracies the principal people do the same because they have not more than an equal share with others who are not equal to them. The situation of the place will also sometimes occasion disturbance in the state when the ground is not well adapted for one city. As at Clasamine, where the people who lived in that part of the town called Kitram quarreled with them who lived in the island, and the Colophonians with the notions. At Athens too the disposition of the citizens is not the same, for those who live in the Piraeus are more attached to a popular government than those who live in the city properly so-called. For as the interposition of a rivulet, however small, will occasion the line of the phalanx to fluctuate, so any trifling disagreement will be the cause of seditions. But they will not so soon flow from anything else as from the disagreement between virtue and vice, and next to that between poverty and riches, and so on in order one cause having more influence than another, one of which that I last mentioned. Chapter 4 But seditions in government do not arise for little things, but from them. For their immediate cause is something of moment. Now, trifling quarrels are attended with the greatest consequences when they arise between persons of the first distinction in the state, as was the case with the Syracusians in a remote period. For a revolution in the government was brought about by a quarrel between two young men who were in office, 
upon a love affair. For one of them being absent, the other seduced his mistress. He in his turn, offended with this, persuaded his friend's wife to come and live with him. And upon this the whole city took part either with the one or the other, and the government was overturned. Therefore every one at the beginning of such disputes ought to take care to avoid the consequences, and to smother up all quarrels which may happen to arise amongst those in power, for the mischief lies in the beginning. For the beginning is said to be half of the business, so that what was then but a little fault will be found afterwards to bear its full proportion to what follows. Moreover, disputes between men of note involve the whole city in their consequences. In Hestilia, after the Median War, two brothers having a dispute about their paternal estate, he who was the poorer from the others having concealed part of the effects and some money which his father had found, engaged the popular party on his side, while the other, who was rich, the men of fashion, and at Delphus, a quarrel about a wedding was the beginning of all the seditions that afterwards arose amongst them. For the bridegroom, being terrified by some unlucky omen upon waiting upon the bride, went away without marrying her which her relations resenting, contrived secretly to convey some sacred money into his pocket while he was sacrificing, and then killed him as an impious person. At Mytilene also, a dispute, which arose concerning a right of heritage, was the beginning of great evils, and a war with the Athenians, in which Patches took their city, for time of fanes, a man of fortune, leaving two daughters, Doxander, who was circumvented in procuring them in marriage for his two sons, began a sedition, and excited the Athenians to attack them, being the host of that state. There was also a dispute at Phocia concerning a right of inheritance between Mises, the father of Amasis, and Euphucrates, the father of Onomachus, which brought on the Phocians the sacred war. The government too of Epidamus was changed from a quarrel that arose from an intended marriage. For a certain man having contracted his daughter in marriage, the father of the young person to whom she was contracted, being Archon, punishes him, upon which account he, resenting the affront, associated himself with those who were excluded from any share in the government and brought about a revolution. A government may be changed either into an oligarchy, democracy, or a free state. When the magistrates or any part of the city acquire great credit or are increased in power, as the court of Areopagus at Athens, having procured great credit during the Median War, added firmness to their administration. And on the other hand, the maritime force, composed of the commonalty, having gained the victory at Salamis by their power at sea, got the lead in the state and strengthened the popular party. And at Argos, the nobles, having gained great credit by the battle of Mantini against the Lacedaemonians, endeavored to dissolve the democracy. And at Syracuse, the victory in their war with the Athenians being owing to the common people, they changed their free state into a democracy. And at Chalcis, the people having taken off the tyrant Phocis, together with the nobles, immediately seized the government, 
and at Ambracia also the people, having expelled the tyrant Periander with his party, placed the supreme power in themselves. And this in general ought to be known, that whosoever has been the occasion of a state being powerful, whether private persons or magistrates, a certain tribe, or any particular part of the citizens, or the multitude, be they who they will, will be the cause of disputes in the state. For either some persons, who envy them the honors they have acquired, will begin to be seditious, or they, on account of the dignity they have acquired, will not be content with their former equality. A state is also liable to commotions when those parts of it which seem to be opposite to each other approach to an equality, as the rich and the common people, so that the part which is between them both is either nothing at all or too little to be noticed. For if one party is so much more powerful than the other, as to be evidently stronger, that other will not be willing to hazard the danger, for which reason those who are superior in excellence and virtue will never be the cause of seditions, for they will be too few for that purpose when compared to the many. In general, the beginning and the causes of seditions in all states are such as I have now described, and revolutions therein are brought about in two ways, either by violence or fraud. If by violence, either at first by compelling them to submit to the change when it is made. It may also be brought about by fraud in two different ways, either when the people, being at first deceived, willingly consent to an alteration in their government, and are afterwards obliged by force to abide by it. As, for instance, when the 400 imposed upon the people by telling them that the king of Persia would supply them with money for the war against the Lacedaemonians. And after they had been guilty of this falsity, they endeavored to keep possession of the supreme power. Or when they are at first persuaded and afterwards consent to be governed. And by one of these methods which I have mentioned are all revolutions in governments brought about. Chapter 5. We ought now to inquire into those events which will arise from these causes in every species of government. Democracies will be most subject to revolutions from the dishonesty of their demagogues. For partly, by informing against men of property, they induce them to join together through self-defense, for a common fear will make the greatest enemies unite and partly by setting the common people against them. And this is what any one may continually see practiced in many states. In the island of Cuz, for instance, the democracy was subverted by the wickedness of the demagogues, for the nobles entered into a combination with each other, and at Rhodes the demagogues, by distributing of bribes, prevented the people from paying the triarchs what was owing to them, who were obliged by the number of actions they were harassed with to conspire together and destroy the popular state. The same thing was brought about at Heraclea, soon after the settlement of the city, by the same persons. For the citizens of note, being ill-treated by them, quitted the city,
but afterwards joining together they returned and overthrew the popular state, just in the same manner the democracy was destroyed in Megara. For there the demagogues, to procure money by confiscations, drove out the nobles, till the number of those who were banished was considerable, who, returning, got the better of the people in a battle, and established an oligarchy. The like happened at Cume, during the time of the democracy, which Thrasymachus destroyed. And whoever considers what has happened in other states may perceive the same revolutions to have arisen from the same causes. The demagogues, to curry favor with the people, drive the nobles to conspire together, either by dividing their estates, or obliging them to spend them on public services, or by banishing them, that they may confiscate the fortune of the wealthy. In former times, when the same person was both demagogue and general, the democracies were changed into tyrannies. And indeed, most of the ancient tyrannies arose from those states, a reason for which then subsisted, but not now. For at that time, the demagogues were of the soldiery, for they were not then powerful by their eloquence. But now the art of oratory is cultivated. The able speakers are at present the demagogues, but as they are unqualified to act in a military capacity, they cannot impose themselves on the people as tyrants. If we accept in one or two trifling instances, formerly, too, tyrannies were more common than now, on account of the very extensive powers with which some magistrates were entrusted, as the Praetanes and Miletus for they were supreme in many things of the last consequence, and also because at that time the cities were not of that very great extent, the people in general living in the country and being employed in husbandry, which gave them, who took the lead in public affairs, an opportunity, if they had a turn for war, to make themselves tyrants, which they all did when they had gained the confidence of the people, and this confidence was their hatred to the rich. This was the case of Pisistratus at Athens, when he opposed the Pediasi, and of Theogenes in Megara, who slaughtered the cattle belonging to the rich after he had seized those who kept them by the riverside. Dionysius also, for accusing Daphysius and the rich, was thought worthy of being raised to a tyranny from the confidence which the people had of his being a popular man in consequence of these enmities. A government shall also alter from its ancient and approved democratic form into one entirely new. If there is no census to regulate the election of magistrates, for, as the election is with the people, the demagogues who are desirous of being in office to flatter them, will endeavor with all their power to make the people superior even to the laws. To prevent this entirely, or at least in a great measure, the magistrates should be elected by the tribes, and not by the people at large. These are nearly the revolutions to which democracies are liable, and also the causes from whence they arise. Chapter 6 there are two things which of all others most evidently occasion a revolution in an oligarchy. One is, when the people are real used, 
for then every individual is ripe for sedition, more particularly if one of the oligarchy should happen to be their leader. As Ligdemus, at Naxus, who was afterwards tyrant of that island, seditions also which arise from different causes will differ from each other. For sometimes a revolution is brought about by the rich who have no share in the administration, which is in the hands of a very few indeed, and this happened at Massilia, Ister, Heraclea, and other cities. For those who had no share in the government ceased not to raise disputes ill they were admitted to it. First the elder brothers, and then the younger also, for in some places the father and son are never in office at the same time. In others the elder and younger brother, and where this is observed the oligarchy partakes something of a free state. At Ister it was changed into a democracy. In Heraclea, instead of being in the hands of a few, it consisted of six hundred. At Nidus the oligarchy was destroyed by the nobles quarreling with each other because the government was in the hands of so few. For there, as we have just mentioned, if the father was in office, the son could not. Or, if there were many brothers, the eldest only. For the people, taking advantage of their disputes, elected one of the nobles for their general and got the victory. For where there are seditions, government is weak. And formerly at Erythrea, during the oligarchy of the Basilides, although the state flourished greatly under their excellent management, yet because the people were displeased that the power should be in the hands of so few, they changed the government. Oligarchies also are subject to revolutions, from those who are in office therein, from the quarrels of the demagogues with each other. The demagogues are of two sorts, one who flatter the few when they are in power, for even these have their demagogues. Such was Chericles at Athens, who had great influence over the thirty, and, in the same manner, Phrenicus over the four hundred. Others are those demagogues who have a share in the oligarchy, and flatter the people. Such were the state guardians at Larissa, who flattered the people because they were elected by them. And this will always happen in every oligarchy where the magistrates do not elect themselves, but are chosen out of men either of great fortune or certain ranks, by the soldiers or by the people, as was the custom at Abydos. And when the judicial department is not in the hands of the supreme power, the demagogues, favoring the people and their causes, overturn the government, which happened at Heraclea and Pantus and also when some desire to contract the power of the oligarchy into fewer hands. For those who endeavor to support an equality are obliged to apply to the people for assistance. An oligarchy is also subject to revolutions when the nobility spend their fortune by luxury. For such persons are desirous of innovations, and either endeavor to be tyrants themselves or to support others in being so. As Hyperinus supported Dionysius of Syracuse, and at Amphipolis one Cleotimus collected a colony of Chalcidians, and when they came set them to quarrel with the rich, 
and at Egina, a certain person who brought an action against shares attempted on that account to alter the government. Sometimes they will try to raise commotions, sometimes they will rob the public, and then quarrel with each other, or else fight with those who endeavor to detect them, which was the case at Apollonio and Pantus. But if the members of an oligarchy agree among themselves, the state is not very easily destroyed without some external force. Tharsalus is a proof of this, where, though the place is small, yet the citizens have great power, from the prudent use they make of it. An oligarchy also will be destroyed when they create an other oligarchy under it, that is, when the management of public affairs is in the hands of a few, and not equally, but when all of them do not partake of the supreme power, as happened once at Ellis, where the supreme power in general was in the hands of a very few out of whom a senate was chosen, consisting but of ninety, who held their places for life, and their mode of election was calculated to preserve the power amongst each other's families, like the senators at Lacedaemon, an oligarchy is liable to a revolution both in time of war and peace. In war, because through a distrust in the citizens, the government is obliged to employ mercenary troops, and he to whom they give the command of the army will very often assume the tyranny, as time of fanes did at Corinth. And if they appoint more than one general, they will very probably establish a dynasty. And sometimes, through fear of this, they are forced to let the people in general have some share in the government, because they are obliged to employ them, in peace, from their want of confidence in each other. They will entrust the guardianship of the state to mercenaries and their general, who will be an arbiter between them, and sometimes become master of both, which happened at Larissa when Simos and the Aliuadae had the chief power. The same thing happened at Abydos, during the time of the political clubs, of which Ephiades was one. Commotions also will happen in an oligarchy from one party's overbearing and insulting another, or from their quarreling about their lawsuits or marriages. How their marriages, for instance, will have that effect has been already shown. And in Eritrea, Diagoras destroyed the oligarchy of the knights upon the same account. A sedition also arose at Heraclea from a certain person being condemned by the court. And at Thebes, in consequence of a man's being guilty of adultery, the punishment indeed which Eurytion suffered at Heraclea was just, yet it was illegally executed, as was that at Thebes upon Archaeus for their enemies endeavored to have them publicly bound in the pillory. Many revolutions also have been brought about in oligarchies by those who could not brook the despotism which those persons assumed who were in power, as at Nidus and Chios. Changes also may happen by accident in what we call a free state and in an oligarchy. Wheresoever the senators, judges, and magistrates are chosen according to a certain census, for it often happens that the highest census is fixed at first, so that a few only could have a share in the government, in an oligarchy, or in a free state those of moderate fortune only. 
When the city grows rich through peace or some other happy cause, it becomes so little that everyone's fortune is equal to the census, so that the whole community may partake of all the honors of government. And this change sometimes happens by little and little, and insensible approach us, sometimes quicker. These are the revolutions and seditions that arise in oligarchies, and the causes to which they are owing. And indeed both democracies and oligarchies sometimes alter, not into governments of a contrary form, but into those of the same government. As, for instance, from having the supreme power in the law to vest it in the ruling party, or the contrary wise. Chapter 7. Commotions also arise in aristocracies, from there being so few persons in power as we have already observed they do in oligarchies, for in this particular an aristocracy is most near an oligarchy, for in both these states the administration of public affairs is in the hands of a few. Not that this arises from the same cause in both, though herein they chiefly seem alike, and these will necessarily be most likely to happen when the generality of the people are high-spirited and think themselves equal to each other in merit. Such were those at Lacedasmon called the Parthenae for these were, as well as others, descendants of citizens, who being detected in a conspiracy against the state, were sent to found Tarentum. They will happen also when some great men are disgraced by those who have received higher honors than themselves, to whom they are no ways inferior in abilities, as Lysander by the kings, or when an ambitious man cannot get into power, as Synodon, who, in the reign of Agesilaus, was chief in a conspiracy against the Spartans, and also when some are too poor and others too rich, which will most frequently happen in time of war. As at Lacedaemon during the Messenian War, which is proved by a poem of Tyrtaus called Eunomia, for some persons being reduced thereby, desired that the lands might be divided, and also when some person of very high rank might still be higher if he could rule alone, which seemed to be Pausanias' intention at Lacedaemon, when he was their general in the Median War and Anno's at Carthage, but free states and aristocracies are mostly destroyed from want of a fixed administration of public affairs. The cause of which evil arise is at first from want of a due mixture of the democratic and the oligarchic pots in a free state, and in an aristocracy from the same causes, and also from virtue not being properly joined to power, but chiefly from the two first. I mean the undue mixture of the democratic and oligarchic pots. For these two are what all free states endeavor to blend together, and many of those which we call aristocracies. In this particular, these states differ from each other, and on this account the one of them is less stable than the other. For that state which inclines most to an oligarchy is called an aristocracy and that which inclines most to a democracy is called a free state, on which account this latter is more secure than the former, for the wider the foundation, the securer the building, 
and it is ever best to live where equality prevails. But the rich, if the community gives them rank, very often endeavor to insult and tyrannize over others. On the whole, whichever way a government inclines, in that it will settle, each party supporting their own, thus a free state will become a democracy, an aristocracy, an oligarchy, or the contrary, an aristocracy may change into a democracy for the poor, if they think themselves injured, directly take part with the contrary side and a free state into an oligarchy. The only firm state is that where everyone enjoys that equality, he has a right to and fully possesses what is his own. And what I have been speaking of happened to the Thurians. For the magistrates being elected according to a very high census, it was altered to a lower, and they were subdivided into more courts. But in consequence of the nobles possessing all the land, contrary to law, the state was too much of an oligarchy, which gave them an opportunity of encroaching greatly on the rest of the people. But these, after they had been well inured to war, so far got the better of their guards as to expel everyone out of the country who possessed more than he ought. Moreover, as all aristocracies are free oligarchies, the nobles therein endeavor to have rather too much power, as at Lacedaemon, where property is now in the hands of a few, and the nobles have too much liberty to do as they please and make such alliances as they please. Thus the city of the Locrians was ruined from an alliance with Dionysius, which state was neither a democracy nor well-tempered aristocracy, but an aristocracy chiefly approached us to a secret change by its being destroyed by degrees. As we have already said of all governments in general, and this happens from the cause of the alteration being trifling. For whenever anything which in the least regards the state is treated with contempt, after that something else, and this of a little more consequence, will be more easily altered, until the whole fabric of government is entirely subverted, which happened in the government of Furium. For the law being that they should continue soldiers for five years, some young men of a martial disposition, who were in great esteem amongst their officers, despising those who had the management of public affairs, and imagining they could easily accomplish their intention, first endeavored to abolish this law, with a view of having it lawful to continue the same person perpetually in the military, perceiving that the people would readily appoint them. Upon this, the magistrates who are called counselors first joined together with an intention to oppose it, but were afterwards induced to agree to it, from a belief that if that law was not repealed, they would permit the management of all other public affairs to remain in their hands. But afterwards, when they endeavored to restrain some fresh alterations that were making, they found that they could do nothing, for the whole form of government was altered into a dynasty of those who first introduced the innovations. In short, all governments are liable to be destroyed either from within or from without. From without when they have for their neighbor a state whose policy is contrary to theirs, 
and indeed if it has great power the same thing will happen if it is not their neighbor, of which both the Athenians and the Lacedaemonians are a proof. For the one, when conquerors everywhere destroyed the oligarchies, the other the democracies. These are the chief causes of revolutions and dissensions in governments. Chapter 8 We are now to consider upon what the preservation of governments in general and of each state in particular depends. And, in the first place, it is evident that if we are right in the causes we have assigned for their destruction, we know also the means of their preservation. For things contrary produce contraries, but destruction and preservation are contrary to each other. In well-tempered governments, it requires as much care as anything whatsoever that nothing be uncontrary to law. And this ought chiefly to be attended to in matters of small consequence. For an illegality that approach us insensibly, approach us secretly. As in a family, small expenses continually repeated consume a man's income. For the understanding is deceived thereby, as by this false argument. If every part is little, then the whole is little. Now, this in one sense is true, in another is false. For the whole and all the parts together are large, though made up of small paths. The first, therefore, of anything is what the state ought to guard against. In the next place, no credit ought to be given to those who endeavor to deceive the people with false pretenses, for they will be confuted by facts. The different ways in which they will attempt to do this have been already mentioned. You may often perceive both aristocracies and oligarchies continuing firm, not from the stability of their forms of government, but from the wise conduct of the magistrates, both towards those who have a part in the management of public affairs and those also who have not, towards those who have not, by never injuring them, and also introducing those who are of most consequence amongst them into office, nor disgracing those who are desirous of honor, or encroaching on the property of individuals, towards those who have, by behaving to each other upon an equality, for that equality which the favors of a democracy desire to have established in the state is not only just, but convenient also amongst those who are of the same rank for which reason. If the administration is in the hands of many, those rules which are established in democracies will be very useful, as to let no one continue in office longer than six months, that all those who are of the same rank may have their turn. For between these there is a sort of democracy, for which reason demagogues are most likely to arise up amongst them, as we have already mentioned. Besides, by this means both aristocracies and democracies will be the less liable to be corrupted into dynasties, because it will not be so easy for those who are magistrates for a little to do as much mischief as they could in a long time. For it is from hence that tyrannies arise in democracies and oligarchies. 
for either those who are most powerful in each state establish a tyranny, as the demagogues in the one, the dynasties in the other, or the chief magistrates who have been long in power. Governments are sometimes preserved not only by having the means of their corruption at a great distance, but also by its being very near them. For those who are alarmed at some impending evil keep a stricter hand over the state, for which reason it is necessary for those who have the guardianship of the Constitution to be able to awaken the fears of the people, that they may preserve it, and not like a night guard to be remiss in protecting the state, but to make the distant danger appear at hand to prevent any alteration taking place in an oligarchy or free state on account of the census. If that happens to continue the same while the quietly of money is increased, it will be useful to take a general account of the whole amount of it in former times, to compare it with the present, and to do this every year in those cities where the census is yearly, in larger communities once in three or five years. And if the whole should be found much larger or much less than it was at the time when the census was first established in the state, let there be a law either to extend or contract it, doing both these according to its increase or decrease. If it increases making the census larger, if it decreases smaller, and if this latter is not done in oligarchies and free states, you will have a dynasty arise in the one an oligarchy in the other. If the former is not, free states will be changed into democracies, and oligarchies into free states or democracies. To prevent any alteration taking place in an oligarchy or free state on account of the census, if that happens to continue the same while the quietly of money is increased, it will be useful to take a general account of the whole amount of it in former times to compare it with the present, and to do this every year in those cities where the census is yearly, 1,308 be in larger communities once in three or five years. And if the whole should be found much larger or much less than it was at the time when the census was first established in the state, let there be a little either to extend or contract it, doing both these according to its increase or decrease. If it increases making the census larger, if it decreases smaller, and if this latter is not done in oligarchies and free states, you will have a dynasty arise in the one, an oligarchy in the other. If the former is not, free states will be changed into democracies, and oligarchies into free states or democracies. It is a general maxim in democracies, oligarchies, monarchies, and indeed in all governments, not to let anyone acquire rank far superior to the rest of the community, but rather to endeavor to confer moderate honors for a continuance than great ones for a short time. For these latter spoil men, for it is not every one who can bear prosperity. But if this rule is not observed, let not those honors which were conferred all at once be all at once taken away, but rather by degrees. But, above all things, let this regulation be made by the law, that no one shall have too much power, 
either by means of his fortune or friends. But if he has, for his excess therein, let it be contrived that he shall quit the country. Now, as me persons promote innovations, that they may enjoy their own particular manner of living, there ought to be a particular officer to inspect the manners of every one, and see that these are not contrary to the genius of the state in which he lives, whether it may be an oligarchy, a democracy, or any other form of government. And, for the same reason, those should be guarded against who are most prosperous in the city, the means of doing which is by appointing those who are otherwise to the business and the offices of the state. I mean, to oppose men of account to the common people, the poor to the rich, and to blend both these into one body, and to increase the numbers of those who are in the middle rank. And this will prevent those seditions which arise from an inequality of condition. There is one method of blending together a democracy and an aristocracy, if office brought no profit by which means both the rich and the poor will enjoy what they desire. For to admit all to a share in the government is democratical. That the rich should be in office is aristocratical. There is one method of blending together a democracy and an aristocracy. 1,309 if office brought no profit. By which means both the rich and the poor will enjoy what they desire. For to admit all to a share in the government is democratical. That the rich should be in office is aristocratical. This must be done by letting no public employment whatsoever be attended with any emolument. For the poor will not desire to be in office when they can get nothing by it, but had rather attend to their own affairs. But the rich will choose it, as they want nothing of the community. Thus the poor will increase their fort yun by being wholly employed in their own concerns. And the principal part of the people will not be governed by the lower sort, to prevent the exchequer from being defrauded. Let all public money be delivered down openly in the face of the whole city, and let copies of the accounts be deposited in the different wards, tribes, and divisions. But, as the magistrates are to execute their offices without any advantages, the law ought to provide proper honors for those who execute them well. In democracies also it is necessary that the rich should be protected by not permitting their lands to be divided, nor even the produce of them, which in some states is done unperceivably. It would be also better if the people would prevent them when they offer to exhibit a number of unnecessary and yet expensive public entertainments of plays, music, processions, and the like. In an oligarchy it is necessary to take great care of the poor and allot them public employments which are gainful. And if any of the rich insult them, to let their punishment be severer than if they insulted one of their own rank and to let a state pass by affinity, and not gift, nor to permit any person to have more than one. For by this means property will be more equally divided, and the greater part of the poor get into better circumstances. 
is also serviceable in a democracy and an oligarchy to allot those who take no part in public affairs and equality or a preference in other things, the rich in a democracy, to the poor in an oligarchy, but still all the principal offices in the state to be filled only by those who are best qualified to discharge them. Chapter 9. There are three qualifications necessary for those who fill the first departments in government. First of all, an affection for the established constitution. Second place, abilities every way completely equal to the business of their office. In the third, virtue and justice correspondent to the nature of that particular state they are placed in. For if justice is not the same in all states, it is evident that there must be different species thereof. There may be some doubt, when all these qualifications do not in the same persons, in what manner the choice shall be made. As for instance, suppose that one person is an accomplished general, but a bad man and no friend to the Constitution. Another is just and a friend to it which shall one prefer. We should then consider of two qualities, which of them the generality possess in a greater degree, which in a less, for which reason in the choice of a general we should regard his courage more than his virtue as the more uncommon quality, as there are fewer capable of conducting an army than there are good men. But to protect the state or manage the line I'll say, the contrary rule should be followed. For these require greater virtue than the generality are possessed of, but only that knowledge which is common to all. It may be asked, if a man has abilities equal to his appointment in the state and is affectionate to the constitution, what occasion is there for being virtuous? since these two things alone are sufficient to enable him to be useful to the public. It is because those who possess those qualities are often deficient in prudence. For, as they often neglect their own affairs, though they know them and love themselves, so nothing will prevent their serving the public in the same manner. In short, Whatsoever the laws contain which we allow to be useful to the state contributes to its preservation. But its first and principal support it is as has been often insisted upon to have the number of those who desire to preserve it greater than those who wish to destroy it. Above all things that ought not to be forgotten which many governments now corrupted neglect, namely, to preserve a mean. For many things seemingly favorable to a democracy destroy a democracy, and many things seemingly favorable to an oligarchy destroy an oligarchy. Those who think this the only virtue extended to excess, not considering that as a nose which varies a little from perfect straightness, either towards a hook nose or a flat one, may yet be beautiful and agreeable to look at. But if this particularity is extended beyond measure, first of all the properties of the part is lost, but at last it can hardly be admitted to be a nose at all on account of the excess of the rise or sinking.
Thus it is with other parts of the human body. So also the same thing is true with respect to states. For both an oligarchy and a democracy may something vary from their most perfect form and yet be well constituted. But if anyone endeavors to extend either of them too far, at first he will make the government the worse for it, but at last there will be no government at all remaining. The lawgiver and the politician therefore should know well what preserves and what destroys a democracy or an oligarchy, for neither the one or the other can possibly continue without rich and poor, but that whenever an entire equality of circumstances prevails, the state must necessarily become of another form, so that those who destroy these laws, which authorize an inequality in property, destroy the government. It is also an error in democracies for the demagogues to endeavor to make the common people superior to the laws, and thus by setting them at variance with the rich, dividing one city into two whereas they ought rather to speak in favor of the rich. In oligarchies, on the contrary, it is wrong to support those who are in administration against the people. The oaths also which they take in an oligarchy ought to be contrary to what they now are. For at present, in some places they swear, I will be adverse to the common people and contrive all I can against them whereas they ought rather to suppose and pretend the contrary, expressing in their oaths that they will not injure the people. But of all things which I have mentioned, that which contributes most to preserve the state is what is now most despised, to educate your children for the state. For the most useful laws and most approved by every statesman will be of no service if the citizens are not accustomed to and brought up in the principles of the Constitution, of a democracy, if that is by law established, of an oligarchy, if that is. For if there are bad morals in one man, there are in the city. But to educate a child fit for the state, it must not be done in the manner which would please either those who have the power in an oligarchy or those who desire a democracy, but so as they may be able to conduct either of these forms of governments. But now the children of the magistrates in an oligarchy are brought up too delicately, and the children of the poor hardy with exercise and labor, so that they are both desirous of and able to promote innovations. In democracies of the purest form, they pursue a method which is contrary to their welfare, the reason of which is that they define liberty wrong. Now, there are two things which seem to be the objects of a democracy, that the people in general should possess the supreme power and all enjoy freedom. For that which is just seems to be equal, and what the people think equal, that is a law. Now, their freedom and equality consists in everyone's doing what they please. That is, in such a democracy, everyone may live as he likes, as his inclination guides, in the words of Euripides. But this is wrong, for no one ought to think it slavery to live in subjection to government, 
but protection. Thus I have mentioned the causes of corruption in different states and the means of their preservation. Chapter 10 It now remains that we speak of monarchies, their causes of corruption, and means of preservation, and indeed almost the same things which have been said of other governments happen to kingdoms and tyrannies. For a kingdom partakes of an aristocracy, a tyranny of the worst species of an oligarchy and democracy, for which reason it is the worst that man can submit to, as being composed of two, both of which are bad, and collectively retains all the corruptions and all the defects of both these states. These two species of monarchies arise from principles contrary to each other, a kingdom is formed to protect the better sort of people against the multitude, and kings are appointed out of those who are chosen either for their superior virtue and actions flowing from virtuous principles, or else from their noble descent. But a tyrant is chosen out of the meanest populace, an enemy to the better sort, that the common people may not be oppressed by them. That this is true experience convinces us. For the generality of tyrants were indeed mere demagogues, who gained credit with the people by oppressing the nobles. Some tyrannies were established in this manner after the cities were considerably enlarged, others before that time, by kings who exceeded the power which their country allowed them, from a desire of governing despotically. Others were founded by those who were elected to the superior offices in the state. For formerly the people appointed officers for life, who came to be at the head of civil and religious affairs, and these chose one out of their body in whom the supreme power over all the magistrates was placed. By all these means it was easy to establish a tyranny, if they chose it. For their power was ready at hand either by their being kings, or else by enjoying the honors of the state. Thus Fidden at Argos and other tyrants enjoyed originally the kingly power. Phalaris and others in Ionia, the honors of the state, Pansetius at Leontium, Cypselus at Corinth, Pisistratus at Athens, Dionysius at Syracuse, and others, acquired theirs by having been demagogues, a kingdom as we have said, partakes much of the nature of an aristocracy, and is bestowed according to worth, as either virtue, family, beneficent actions, or these join with power. For those who have been benefactors to cities and states, or have it in their powers to be so, have acquired this honor, and those who have prevented a people from falling into slavery by war, as Codrus, or those who have freed them from it, as Cyrus, or the founders of cities, or settlers of colonies, as the kings of Sparta, Macedon, and Molossus. A king desires to be the guardian of his people, that those who have property may be secure in the possession of it, and that the people in general meet with no injury. But a tyrant, as has been often said, has no regard to the common good, except for his own advantage. His only object is pleasure, but a king's is virtue. 
What a tyrant therefore is ambitious of engrossing is wealth, but a king rather honor. The guards too of a king are citizens, a tyrant's foreigners. That a tyranny contains all that is bad both in a democracy and an oligarchy is evident. With an oligarchy it has for its sin gain, as the only means of providing the tyrant with guards and the luxuries of life. Like that it places no confidence in the people, and therefore deprives them of the use of arms. It is also common to them both to persecute the populace, to drive them out of the city and their own habitations. With a democracy, it quarrels with the nobles and destroys them both publicly and privately, or drives them into banishment as rivals and an impediment to the government. Hence naturally arise conspiracies both amongst those who desire to govern and those who desire not to be slaves. Hence arose Perry Anner's advice to Thrasybulus to take off the tallest stalks, hinting thereby that it was necessary to make away with the eminent citizens. We ought then in reason, as has been already said, to account for the changes which arise in a monarchy from the same causes which produce them in other states. For, through injustice received, fear, and contempt, many of those who are under a monarchical government conspire against it. But of all species of injustice, injurious contempt has most influence on them for that purpose. Sometimes it is owing to their being deprived of their private fort you. The dissolution too of a kingdom and a tyranny are generally the same. For monarchs abound in wealth and honor, which all are desirous to obtain. Of plots, some aim at the life of those who govern, others at their government. The first arises from hatred to their persons, which hatred may be owing to many causes, either of which will be sufficient to excite their anger, and the generality of those who are under the influence of that passion will join in a conspiracy, not for the sake of their own advancement, but for revenge. Thus the plot against the children of Pisistratus arose from their injurious treatment of Harmodius' sister, and insulting him also. For Harmodius, resenting the injury done to his sister, and Aristogiton in the injury done to Harmodius. Periander the tyrant of Ambraci also lost his life by a conspiracy, for some improper liberties he took with a boy in his cups. And Philip was slain by Pausanias for neglecting to revenge him of the affront he had received from Atanes, as was Amentus the little by Darda, for insulting him on account of his age and the eunuch by Evagoras the Cyprian in revenge for having taken his son's wife away from him. Many also who have had their bodies scourged with stripes have, through resentment, either killed those who caused them to be inflicted or conspired against them, even when they had kingly power, as at Mytilene Megacles, joining with his friends, killed the Penthelidae, who used to go about striking those they met with clubs. Thus, in later times, Smins killed Penthilus for whipping him and dragging him away from his wife. Decamnicus also was the chief cause of the conspiracy against Archelaus, for he urged others on. 
The occasion of his resentment was his having delivered him to Euripides the poet to be scourged. For Euripides was greatly offended with him for having said something of the foulness of his breath, and many others have been killed or conspired against on the same account. Fear too is a cause which produces the same effects, as well in monarchies as in other states. Thus Artabanes conspired against Xerxes through fear of punishment for having hanged Darius according to his orders, whom he supposed he intended to pardon, as the order was given at supper time. Some kings also have been dethroned and killed in consequence of the contempt they were held in by the people. As someone conspired against Sardanapalus, having seen him spinning with his wife, if what is related of him is true, or if not of him, it may very probably be true of someone else. Dion also conspired against Dionysius the Younger, seeing his subjects desirous of a conspiracy, and that he himself was always drunk, and even a man's friends will do this if they despise him. For from the confidence he places in them, they think that they shall not be found out. Those also who think they shall gain his throne will conspire against the king through contempt. For as they are powerful themselves and despise the danger on account of their own strength, they will readily attempt it. Thus a general at the head of his army will endeavor to dethrone the monarch, as Cyrus did Astyages, despising both his manner of life and his forces. His forces for want of action, his life for its effeminacy. Thus Subs the Thracian, who was general to Amadocus, conspired against him. Sometimes more than one of these causes will excite men to enter into conspiracies, as contempt and desire of gain. As in the instance of Mithridates against Ariobarzanes, those also who are of a bold disposition and have gained military honors amongst kings, will of all others be most like to engage in sedition. For strength and courage united inspire great bravery. Whenever, therefore, these join in one person, he will be very ready for conspiracies, as he will easily conquer. Those who conspire against a tyrant through love of glory and honor have a different motive in view from what I have already mentioned. For, like all others who embrace danger, they have only glory and honor in view, and think, not as some do, of the wealth and pamp they may acquire, but engage in this as they would in any other noble action, that they may be illustrious and distinguished, and destroy a tyrant, not to succeed in his tyranny, but to acquire renown. No doubt but the number of those who act upon this principle is small, for we must suppose they regard their own safety as nothing in case they should not succeed, and must embrace the opinion of Dion which few can do when he made war upon Dionysius with a very few troops. For he said, that let the advantage he may be ever so little it would satisfy him to have gained it, and that, should it be his lot to die the moment he had gained footing in his country, he should think his death sufficiently glorious. A tyranny also is exposed to the same destruction as all other states are from two powerful neighbors. 
for it is evident that an opposition of principles will make them desirous of subverting. And what they desire, all who can, do, and there is a principle of opposition in one state to another, as a democracy against a tyranny, as says he see it, a potter against a potter. For the extreme of a democracy is a tyranny, a kingly power against an aristocracy, from their different forms of government for which reason the Lacedaemonians destroyed me tyrannies, as did the Syracusians during the prosperity of their state. Nor are they only destroyed from without, but also from within, when those who have no share in the power bring about a revolution, as happened to Jelen, and lately to Dionysius, to the first, by means of Thrasybulus, the brother of Hero, who nattered Jelen's son, and induced him to lead a life of pleasure, that he himself might govern. But the family joined together and endeavored to support the tyranny and expel Thrasybulus. But those whom they made of their party seized the opportunity and expelled the whole family. Dion made war against his relation Dionysius, and being assisted by the people, first expelled and then killed him. As there are two causes which chiefly induce men to conspire against tyrants, hatred and contempt, one of these, namely hatred, seems inseparable from them. Contempt also is often the cause of their destruction. For though, for instance, those who raised themselves to the supreme power generally preserved it, but those who received it from them have, to speak truth, almost immediately all of them lost it. For falling into an effeminate way of life, they soon grew despicable and generally fell victims to conspiracies. Part of their hatred may be very fitly ascribed to anger. For in some cases, this is their motive to action. For it is often a cause which impels them to act more powerfully than hatred, and they proceed with greater obstinacy against those whom they attack, as this passion is not under the direction of reason. Many persons also indulge this passion through contempt, which occasioned the fall of the P.C. Strudidae and many others. But hatred is more powerful than anger, for anger is accompanied with grief, which prevents the entrance of reason. But hatred is free from it. In short, whatever causes may be assigned as the destruction of a pure oligarchy and mixed with any other government and an extreme democracy. The same may be applied to a tyranny, for these are divided tyrannies. Kingdoms are seldom destroyed by any outward attack, for which reason they are generally very stable, but they have many causes of subversion within, of which two are the principal. One is when those who are in power excite a sedition, the other when they endeavor to establish a tyranny by assuming greater power than the law gives them. A kingdom, indeed, is not what we ever see erected in our times, but rather monarchies and tyrannies. For a kingly government is one that is voluntarily submitted to, and its supreme power admitted upon great occasions. But where many are equal, and there are none in any respect, so much better than another as to be qualified for the greatness 
and dignity of government over them, then these equals will not willingly submit to be commanded. But if anyone assumes the government, either by force or fraud, this is a tyranny. To what we have already said we shall add the causes of revolutions in an hereditary kingdom. One of these is that many of those who enjoy it are naturally proper objects of contempt only. Another is that they are insolent while their power is not despotic, but they possess kingly honors only. Such a state is soon destroyed. For a king exists but while the people are willing to obey, as their submission to him is voluntary, but to a tyrant involuntary. These and such like are the causes of the destruction of monarchies. Chapter 11. Monarchies, in a word, are preserved by means contrary to what I have already mentioned as the cause of their destruction, but to speak to each separately. The stability of a kingdom will depend upon the power of the king's being kept within moderate bounds. For by how much the less extensive his power is, by so much the longer will his government continue. For he will be less despotic and more upon an equality of condition with those he governs, who, on that account, will envy him the less. It was on this account that the kingdom of the Molossi continued so long, and the Lacedaemonians from their governments being from the beginning divided into two parts, and also by the moderation introduced into the other parts of it by Theopompus and his establishment of the Ephori. For by taking something from the power, he increased the duration of the kingdom, so that in some measure he made it not less, but bigger. As they say, he replied to his wife, who asked him if he was not ashamed to deliver down his kingdom to his children reduced from what he received it from his ancestors. No, says he, I give it him more lasting. Tyrannies are preserved two ways most opposite to each other one of which is when the power is delegated from one to the other, and in this manner many tyrants govern in their states. Report says that Perry and are found in many of these. There are also many of them to be met with amongst the Persians. What has been already mentioned is as conducive as anything can be to preserve a tyranny. Namely, to keep down those who are of an aspiring disposition, to take off those who will not submit, to allow no public meals, no clubs, no education, nothing at all, but to guard against everything that gives rise to high spirits or mutual confidence, nor to suffer the learned meetings of those who are at leisure to hold conversation with each other, and to endeavor by every means possible to keep all the people strangers to each other for knowledge increases mutual confidence, and to oblige all strangers to appear in public and to live near the city gate, that all their actions may be sufficiently seen. For those who are kept like slaves seldom entertain any noble thoughts, in short, to imitate everything which the Persians and barbarians do, for they all contribute to support slavery and to endeavor to know what every one who is under their power does and says, and for this purpose to employ spies, 
Such were those women whom the Syracusians called Podagogids. Hero also used to send out listeners wherever there was any meeting or conversation. For the people dare not speak with freedom for fear of such persons. And if any one does, there is the less chance of its being concealed. And to endeavor that the whole community should mutually accuse and come to blows with each other, friend with friend, the commons with the nobles, and the rich with each other. It is also advantageous for a tyranny that all those who are under it should be oppressed with poverty, that they may not be able to compose a guard, and that, being employed in procuring their daily bread, they may have no leisure to conspire against their tyrants. The pyramids of Egypt are a proof of this and the votive edifices of the Cyposolides and the temple of Jupiter Olympus, built by the Pisistridae, and the works of Polycrates at Samos. For all these produced one end, the keeping the people poor. It is necessary also to multiply taxis, as at Syracuse, where Dionysius in the space of five years collected all the private property of his subjects into his own coffers. A tyrant also should endeavor to engage his subjects in a war, that they may have employment and continually depend upon their general. A king is preserved by his friends, but a tyrant is of all persons the man who can place no confidence in friends, as everyone has it in his desire and these chiefly in their power to destroy him, for which reason flatterers are in repute in both these the demagogue in the democracy, for he is the proper flatterer of the people. Among tyrants, he who will servilely adapt himself to their humors. For this is the business of flatterers, for which reason flatterers are in repute in both these. The demagogue in the democracy, for he is the proper flatterer of the people. Among tyrants, he who will servilely adapt himself to their humors. For this is the business of 1,314 of flatterers. And for this reason tyrants always love the worst of wretches, for they rejoice in being flattered, which no man of a liberal spirit will submit to. For they love the virtuous, but flatter none. Bad men too are fit for bad purposes, like to like, as the proverb says. A tyrant also should show no favor to a man of worth or a freeman. For he should think that no one deserved to be thought these but himself. For he who supports his dignity and is a friend to freedom encroaches upon the superiority and the despotism of the tyrant. Such men, therefore, they naturally hate as destructive to their government. A tyrant also should rather admit strangers to his table and familiarity than citizens, as these are his enemies, but the others have no design against him. These and such like are the supports of a tyranny, for it comprehends whatsoever is wicked. But all these things may be comprehended in three divisions, for there are three objects which a tyranny has in view, one of which is that the citizens should be of poor, abject dispositions. For such men never propose to conspire against anyone. The second is 
that they should have no confidence in each other. For while they have not this, the tyrant is safe enough from destruction, for which reason they are always at enmity with those of merit, as hurtful to their government, not only as they scorn to be governed despotically, but also because they can rely upon each other's fidelity, and others can rely upon theirs, and because they will not inform against their associates, nor anyone else. The third is, that they shall be totally without the means of doing anything. For no one undertakes what is impossible for him to perform, so that without power tyranny can never be destroyed. These, then, are the three objects which the inclinations of tyrants desire to see accomplished. For all their tyrannical plans tend to promote one of these three ends, that their people may neither have mutual confidence, power, nor spirit. This, then, as the foundation, must be preserved, in other particulars carefully do and affect to seem like a king. First, appear to pay a great attention to what belongs to the public, nor make such profuse presents as will offend the people. While they are to supply the money out of the hard labor of their own hands, and see it given in profusion to mistresses, foreigners, and fiddlers, keeping an exact account both of what you receive and pay, which is a practice some tyrants do actually follow, by which means they seem rather fathers of families than tyrants. Nor need you ever fear the want of money while you have the supreme power of the state in your own hands. This, then, as the foundation, must be preserved, in other particulars carefully do and affect to seem like a king. First, appear to pay a great attention 1,314 billion to what belongs to the public, nor make such profuse presents as will offend the people. While they are to supply the money out of the hard labor of their own hands, and see it given in profusion to mistresses, foreigners, and fiddlers, keeping an exact account both of what you receive and pay, which is a practice some tyrants do actually follow, by which means they seem rather fathers of families than tyrants. Nor need you ever fear the want of money while you have the supreme power of the state in your own hands. It is also much better for those tyrants who quit their kingdom to do this than to leave behind the money they have hoarded up. For their regents will be much less desirous of making innovations, and they are more to be dreaded by absent tyrants than the citizens. For such of them as he suspects he takes with him, but these regents must be left behind. He should also endeavor to appear to collect such taxes and require such services as the exigencies of the state demand, that whenever they are wanted they may be ready in time of war, and particularly to take care that he appear to collect and keep them not as his own property, but the public's. His appearance also should not be severe, but respectable, so that he should inspire those who approach him with veneration and not fear. But this will not be easily accomplished if he is despised. If, therefore, he will not take the pains to acquire any other, he ought to endeavor to be a man of political abilities, 
and to fix that opinion of himself in the judgment of his subjects. He should also take care not to appear to be guilty of the least offense against modesty, nor to suffer it in those under him, nor to permit the women of his family to treat others haughtily. For the haughtiness of women has been the ruin of many tyrants. His conduct in general should also be contrary to what is reported of former tyrants. For he ought to improve and adorn his city, so as to seem a guardian and not a tyrant. And moreover, always to seem particularly attentive to the worship of the gods. For from persons of such a character men entertain less fears of suffering anything illegal while they suppose that he who governs them is religious and reverence is the gods. And they will be less inclined to raise insinuations against such a one as being peculiarly under their protection. But this must be so done as to give no occasion for any suspicion of hypocrisy. His conduct in general should also be contrary to what is reported of former tyrants. For he ought to improve and adorn his city, so as to seem a guardian and not a tyrant. And moreover, always to 1,315 a seem particularly attentive to the worship of the gods. For from persons of such a character men entertain less fears of suffering anything illegal while they suppose that he who governs them is religious and reverence is the gods. And they will be less inclined to raise insinuations against such a one as being peculiarly under their protection. But this must be so done as to give no occasion for any suspicion of hypocrisy. He should also take care to show such respect to men of merit in every particular, that they should not think they could be treated with greater distinction by their fellow citizens in a free state. He should also let all honors flow immediately from himself, but every censure from his subordinate officers and judges. It is also a common protection of all monarchies not to make one person too great or certainly not many, for they will support each other. But if it is necessary to entrust any large powers to one person, to take care that it is not one of an ardent spirit, for this disposition is upon every opportunity most ready for revolution. And if it should seem necessary to deprive any one of his power, to do it by degrees, and not reduce him all at once. It is also necessary to abstain from all kinds of insolence, more particularly from corporal punishment, which you must be most cautious never to exercise over those who have a delicate sense of honor. For as those who love money are touched to the quick when anything affects their property, so are men of honor and principle when they receive any disgrace. Therefore, either never employ personal punishment, or, if you do, let it be only in the manner in which a father would correct his son, and not with contempt. And, upon the whole, make commence for any seeming disgrace by bestowing greater honors. But of all persons who are most likely to entertain designs against the person of a tyrant, 
Those are chiefly to be feared and guarded against who regard as nothing the loss of their own lives, so that they can but accomplish their purpose. Be very careful, therefore, of those who either think themselves a friend or those who are dear to them. For those who are excited by anger to revenge regard as nothing their own persons. For, as Heraclitus says, it is dangerous to fight with an angry man who will purchase with his life the thing he aims at. It would be superfluous to go through all particulars. For the rule of conduct which the tyrant ought to pursue is evident enough, and that is, to affect to appear not the tyrant, but the king, the guardian of those he governs, not their plunderer, but their protector, and to affect the middle rank in life not one superior to all others. He should, therefore, associate his nobles with him and soothe his people. For his government will not only be necessarily more honorable and worthy of imitation, as it will be over men of worth and not abject wretches who perpetually both hate and fear him, but it will be also more durable. It would be superfluous to go through all particulars. For the rule of conduct which the tyrant ought to pursue is evident enough, and that is, to affect to appear not the tyrant, but the king, the guardian of those he governs, not their plunderer, 1315b, but their protector, and to affect the middle rank in life, not one superior to all others. He should, therefore, associate his nobles with him and soothe his people. For his government will not only be necessarily more honorable and worthy of imitation, as it will be over men of worth and not abject wretches who perpetually both hate and fear him, but it will be also more durable. Let him also frame his life so that his manners may be consentious to virtue, or at least let half of them be so, that he may not be altogether wicked, but only so in part. Chapter 12. In the an oligarchy and a tyranny are of all governments of the shortest duration. The tyranny of Orthagoras and his family at Sasayan, it is true, continued longer than any other, the reason for which was that they used their power with moderation and were in many particulars obedient to the laws. And as Clisthenes was an able general, he never fell into contempt and by the care he took that in many particulars his government should be popular. He is reported also to have presented a person with a crown who adjudged the victory to another. And some say that it is the statue of that judge which is placed in the form. They say also that Pisistrate is submitted to be summoned into the court of the Areopagites. The second that we shall mention is the tyranny of the Sipselids at Corinth, which continued 77 years and six months. For Sipsilus was tyrant there 30 years, Perry and her 44, and Summiticus, the son of Georges, three years. The reason for which was that Sipsilus was a popular man and governed without guards. Perry and her drooled like a tyrant, but then he was an able general. The third was that of the Pisistra Didae at Athens, but it was not continual, 
for Pisistratus himself was twice expelled, so that out of 33 years he was only 15 in power, and his son 18, so that the whole time was 33 years. Of the rest we shall mention that of Hero, and Gillo at Syracuse. And this did not continue long, for both their reigns were only 18 years. For Gelo died in the eighth year of his tyranny, and Hero in his tenth. For Sibulus fell in his eleventh month, and many other tyrannies have continued a very short time. We have now gone through the general cases of corruption and means of preservation both in free states and monarchies. In Plato's Republic, Socrates is introduced treating upon the changes which different governments are liable to, but his discourse is faulty, for he does not particularly mention what changes the best and first governments are liable to, for he only assigns the general cause of nothing being immutable, but that in time everything will alter slash he conceives that nature will then produce bad men who will not submit to education, and in this, probably, he is not wrong. For it is certain that there are some persons whom it is impossible by any education to make good men. But why should this change be more peculiar to what he calls the best form government than to all other forms, and indeed to all other things that exist, and in respect to his assigned time? As the cause of the alteration of all things, we find that those which did not begin to exist at the same time ceased to be at the same time. So that, if anything came into beginning the day before the solstice, it must alter at the same time. Besides, why should such a form of government be changed into the Lacedaemonian? For, in general, when governments alter, they alter into the contrary species to what they before were, and not into one like their former. And this reasoning holds true of other changes, for he says that from the Lacedaemonian form it changes into an oligarchy, and from thence into a democracy, and from a democracy into a tyranny. And sometimes a contrary change takes place, as from a democracy into an oligarchy, rather than into a monarchy. With respect to a tyranny, he neither says whether there will be any change in it, or if not, to what cause it will be owing, or if there is, into what other state it will alter. But the reason of this is that a tyranny is an indeterminate government, and according to him, every state ought to alter into the first and most perfect Thus the continuity and circle would be preserved. But one tyranny often changed into another, as at Syria, from Myrans to Clisthenes, or into an oligarchy, as was Antileos at Calchas, or into a democracy, as was Gelos at Syracuse, or into an aristocracy, as was Cherlaus at Lacedaemon and at Carthage. An oligarchy is also changed into a tyranny. Such was the rise of most of the ancient tyranny in Susso, at Leondini into the tyranny of Panatius, at Gela into that of Clander, at Regium into that of Anaxilaus, and the like in many other cities. It is absurd also to suppose 
that a state is changed into an oligarchy because those who are in power are avaricious and greedy of money, and not because those who are by far richer than their fellow citizens think it unfair that those who have nothing should have an equal share in the rule of the state with themselves who possess so much, for in many oligarchies it is not allowable to be employed in money-getting, and there are many laws to prevent it. But in Carthage, which is a democracy, money-getting is creditable, and yet their form of government remains an altar. It is also absurd to say that in an oligarchy there are two cities, one of the poor and another of the rich. For why should this happen to them more than to the Lacedaemonians, or any other state where all possess not equal property, or where all are not equally good? For though no one member of the community should be poorer than he was before, yet a democracy might nevertheless change into an oligarchy. If the rich should be more powerful than the poor, and the one too negligent, and the other attendant, and though these changes are owing to many causes, yet he mentions but one only, that the citizens become poor by luxury and paying interest money, as if at first they were all rich, or the greater part of them. But this is not so. But when some of those who have the principal management of public affairs lose their fort yun, they will endeavor to bring about a revolution. But when others do, Nothing of consequence will follow, nor when such states do alter is there any more reason for their altering into a democracy than any other. Besides, though some of the members of the community may not have spent their for you, yet if they share not in the honors of the state, or if they are ill-used and insulted, they will endeavor to raise seditions and bring about a revolution, that they may be allowed to do as they like which, Plato says, arise is from too much liberty. Although there are many oligarchies and democracies, yet Socrates, when he is treating of the changes they may undergo, speaks of them as if there was but one of each sort. Book 6. Chapter I. We have already shown what is the nature of the Supreme Council in the state and wherein one may differ from another, and how the different magistrates should be regulated, and also the judicial department, and what is best suited to what state, and also to what causes both the destruction and preservation of governments are owing. As there are very many species of democracies, as well as of other states, it will not be amiss to consider at the same time anything which we may have omitted to mention concerning either of them, and to allot to each that mode of conduct which is peculiar to and advantageous for them, and also to inquire into the combinations of all these different modes of government which we have mentioned. For as these are blended together, the government is altered as from an aristocracy to be an oligarchy, and from a free state to be a democracy. Now, I mean by those combinations of government which I ought to examine into, but have not yet done, namely, whether the deliberative department 
and the election of magistrates is regulated in a manner correspondent to an oligarchy, or the judicial to an aristocracy, or the deliberative part only to an oligarchy, and the election of magistrates to an aristocracy, or whether in any other manner, everything is not regulated according to the nature of the government. But we will first consider what particular sort of democracy is fitted to a particular city, and also what particular oligarchy to a particular people, and of other states, what is advantageous to what. It is also necessary to show clearly not only which of these governments is best for a state, but also how it ought to be established there, and other things we will treat of briefly. And first, we will speak of a democracy. And this will at the same time show clearly the nature of its opposite, which some persons call an oligarchy. And in doing this, we must examine into all the parts of a democracy and everything that is connected therewith. For from the manner in which these are compounded together, different species of democracies arise. And hence it is that they are more than one and of various natures. Now, there are two causes which occasion there being so many democracies, one of which is that which we have already mentioned, namely, there being different sorts of people. For in one country the majority are husbandmen, in another mechanics and hired servants. If the first of these is added to the second, and the third to both of them, the democracy will not only differ in the particular of better or worse, but in this, that it will be no longer the same government. The other is that which we will now speak of, the different things which are connected with democracies and seem to make part of these states do, from their being joined to them, render them different from others. This attending a few, that more, and another all, it is necessary that he who would found any state which he may happen to approve of or correct one should be acquainted with all these particulars. All founders of states endeavor to comprehend within their own plan everything of nearly the same kind with it. But in doing this they err, in the manner I have already described in treating of the preservation and destruction of governments. I will now speak of these first principles and manners, and whatever else a democratical state requires. Chapter 2. Now the foundation of a democratical state is liberty. And people have been accustomed to say this as if here only liberty was to be found. For they affirm that this is the end proposed by every democracy. But one part of liberty is to govern and be governed alternately. For, according to democratical justice, equality is measured by numbers and not by worth, and this being just, it is necessary that the supreme power should be vested in the people at large, and that what the majority determines should be final, so that in a democracy the poor ought to have more power than the rich, as being the greater number. For this is one mark of liberty which all framers of a democracy lay down as a criterion of that state. Another is, to live as everyone likes. For this, they say, 
is a right which liberty gives, since he is a slave who must live as he likes not. This, then, is another criterion of a democracy. Hence arises the claim to be under no command whatsoever to anyone, upon any account, any otherwise than by rotation, and that just as far only as that person is, in his turn, under his also. This also is conducive to that equality which liberty demands. These things being premised, and such being the government, it follows that such rules as the following should be observed in it, that all the magistrates should be chosen out of all the people, and all to command each, and each in his turn all, that all the magistrates should be chosen by lot, except to those offices only which required some particular knowledge and skill, that no census, or a very small one, should be required to qualify a man for any office, that none should be in the same employment twice, or very few, and very seldom, except in the army, that all their appointments should be limited to a very short time, or at least as many as possible, that the whole community should be qualified to judge in all causes whatsoever, let the object be ever so extensive, ever so interesting, or of ever so high a nature, as at Athens, where the people at large judge the magistrates when they come out of office and decide concerning public affairs as well as private contracts, that the supreme power should be in the public assembly, and that no magistrate should be allowed any discretionary power but in a few instances, and of no consequence to public business. Of all magistrates, a senate is best suited to a democracy, where the whole community is not paid for giving their attendance. For in that case it loses its power. For then the people will bring all causes before them by appeal, as we have already mentioned in a former book. In the next place, there should, if possible, be a fund to pay all the citizens who have any share in the management of public affairs, either as members of the assembly, judges, and magistrates. But if this cannot be done, at least the magistrates, the judges, the senators, and members of the Supreme Assembly, and also those officers who are obliged to eat at a common table law to be paid. In this state also no office should be for life. And if any such should remain after the government has been long changed into a democracy, they should endeavor by degrees to diminish the power and also elect by lot instead of vote. In this state also no office 1,318 should be for life. And if any such should remain after the government has been long changed into a democracy, they should endeavor by degrees to diminish the power and also elect by lot instead of vote. These things then appertain to all democracies namely to be established on that principle of justice which is homogeneous to those governments that is that all the members of the state by number should enjoy an equality which seems chiefly to constitute a democracy or government of the people 
for it seems perfectly equal that the rich should have no more share in the government than the poor, nor be alone in power, but that all should be equal according to number. For thus, they think, the equality and liberty of the state best preserved. Chapter 3 In the next place we must inquire how this equality is to be procured. Shall the qualifications be divided so that five hundred rich should be equal to a thousand poor, or shall the thousand have equal power with the five hundred? Or shall we not establish our equality in this manner, but divide indeed thus, and afterwards taking an equal number both out of the five hundred and a thousand, invest them with the power of creating the magistrates and judges? Is this state then established according to perfect democratical justice, or rather that which is guided by numbers only? For the defenders of a democracy say, that that is just which the majority approve of. But the favors of an oligarchy say that that is just which those who have most approve of, and that we ought to be directed by the value of property. Both the propositions are unjust. For if we agree with what the few propose, we erect a tyranny. For if it should happen that an individual should have more than the rest who are rich, According to oligarchical justice, this man alone has a right to the supreme power. But if superiority of numbers is to prevail, injustice will then be done by confiscating the property of the rich, who are few, as we have already said. What then that equality, which both parties will admit, must be collected from the definition of right which is common to them both? For they both say that what the majority of the state approves of ought to be established. Be it so, but not entirely. But since a city happens to be made up of two different ranks of people, the rich and the poor, let that be established which is approved of by both these, or the greater part. But should there be opposite sentiments, let that be established which shall be approved of by the greater part. But let this be according to the senses. For instance, if there should be ten of the rich and twenty of the poor, and six of the first and fifteen of the last should agree upon any measure, and the remaining four of the rich should join with the remaining five of the poor in opposing it, that party whose census when added together should determine which opinion should be law, and should these happen to be equal, it should be regarded as a case similar to an assembly or court of justice dividing equally upon any question that comes before them, who either determine it by lot or some such method, but although, with respect to what is equal and just, it may be very difficult to establish the truth Yet it is much easier to do than to persuade those who have it in their power to encroach upon others to be guided thereby. For the weak always desire what is equal and just, but the powerful pay no regard thereunto. Chapter 4 There are four kinds of democracies. The best is that which is composed of those first in order, as we have already said 
and this also is the most ancient of any. I call that the first which every one would place so, was he to divide the people. For the best part of these are the husbandmen. We see, then, that a democracy may be framed where the majority live by tillage or pasturage. For, as their property is but small, they will not be at leisure perpetually to hold public assemblies, but will be continually employed in following their own business, not having otherwise the means of living. Nor will they be desirous of what another enjoys, but will rather like to follow their own business than meddle with state affairs and accept the offices of government, which will be attended with no great profit. For the major part of mankind are rather desirous of riches than honor a proof of this is, that they submitted to the tyrannies in ancient times, and do now submit to the oligarchies, if no one hinders them in their usual occupations, or deprives them of their property. For some of them soon get rich, others are removed from poverty. Besides, their having the right of election and calling their magistrates to account for their conduct when they come out of office will satisfy their desire of honors, if any of them entertain that passion. For in some states, though the commonalty have not the right of electing the magistrates, yet it is vested in part of that body chosen to represent them. And it is sufficient for the people at large to possess the deliberative power. And this ought to be considered as a species of democracy. They will be also careful to use their power with moderation, as there are others to whom full power is delegated to censure their conduct. For it is very serviceable to the state to have them dependent upon others, and not to be permitted to do whatsoever they choose. For with such a liberty there would be no check to that evil particle there is in every one. Therefore it is necessary and most for the benefit of the state that the offices thereof should be filled by the principal persons in it, whose characters are unblemished, and that the people are not oppressed. A state thus constituted must be well constituted. For the magistracies will be always filled with the best men with the approbation of the people, who will not envy their superiors. And these and the nobles should be content with the spart in the administration, for they will not be governed by their inferiors. They will be also careful to use their power with moderation, as there are others to whom full power is delegated to censure their conduct. For it is very serviceable to the state to have them dependent upon others, and not to be permitted to do whatsoever they choose. For with such a liberty there would be no check to that evil particle there is in every one. Therefore it is 1,319 a necessary and most for the benefit of the state that the offices thereof should be filled by the principal persons in it, whose characters are unblemished, and that the people are not oppressed. It is now evident that this is the best species of democracy, and on what account? Because the people are such and have such powers as they ought to have 
To establish a democracy of husbandmen, some of those laws which were observed in many ancient states are universally useful. As, for instance, on no account to permit anyone to possess more than a certain quarterly of land or within a certain distance from the city. Formerly also, in some states, no one was allowed to sell their original lot of land. They also mention a law of one oxillus, which forbade anyone to add to their patrimony by usury. We ought also to follow the law of the Appians, as useful to direct us in this particular we are now speaking of. For they having but very little ground, while they were a numerous people, and at the same time were all husbandmen, did not include all their lands within the census, but divided them in such a manner that, according to the census, the poor had more power than the rich. Next to the commonalty of husbandmen is one of shepherds and herdsmen, for they have many things in common with them, and, by their way of life, are excellently qualified to make good soldiers, stout in body, and able to continue in the open air all night. We have shown in what manner the first and best democracy ought to be established, and it will be equally evident as to the rest, for from these we should proceed as a guide, and always separate the meanest of the people from the rest. When a country happens to be so situated that a great part of the land lies at a distance from the city, there it is easy to establish a good democracy or a free state for the people in general will be obliged to live in the country. So that it will be necessary in such a democracy, though there may be an exchange mob at hand, never to allow a legal assembly without the inhabitants of the country attend. We have shown in what manner the first and best democracy ought to be established and it will be equally evident as to the rest. For from these we 1,319 billion should proceed as a guide, and always separate the meanest of the people from the rest. But the last and worst, which gives to every citizen without distinction a share in every part of the administration, is what few citizens can bear, nor is it easy to preserve for any long time unless well supported by laws and manners. We have already noticed almost every cause that can destroy either this or any other state. Those who have taken the lead in such a democracy have endeavored to support it and make the people powerful by collecting together as many persons as they could and giving them their freedom, not only legitimately but naturally born. And also if either of their parents were citizens, that is to say, if either their father or mother. And this method is better suited to this state than any other. And thus the demagogues have usually managed. They ought, however, to take care and do this no longer than the common people are superior to the nobles and those of the middle rank, and then stop. For if they proceed still further, they will make the state disorderly and the nobles will ill-brook the power of the common people, and be full of resentment against it, which was the cause of an insurrection at Cyrene. For a little evil is overlooked, but when it becomes a great one it strikes the eye. It is, moreover, 
very useful in such a state to do as Clisthenes did at Athens, when he was desirous of increasing the power of the people, and as those did who established the democracy in Cyrene, that is, to institute many tribes and fraternities, and to make the religious rights of private persons few and those common. And every means is to be contrived to associate and blend the people together as much as possible, and that all former customs be broken through. Moreover, whatsoever is practiced in a tyranny seems adapted to a democracy of this species, as, for instance, the licentiousness of the slaves, the women, and the children. For this to a certain degree is useful in such a state and also to overlook everyone's living as they choose. For many will support such a government, for it is more agreeable to many to live without any control than as prudence would direct. Chapter 5 It is also the business of the legislator and all those who would support a government of this sort not to make it too great a work or too perfect, but to aim only to render it stable for let a state be constituted ever so badly, there is no difficulty in its continuing a few days. They should therefore endeavor to procure its safety by all those ways which we have described in assigning the causes of the preservation and destruction of governments, avoiding what is hurtful, and by framing such laws, written and unwritten, as contain those things which chiefly tend to the preservation of the state, nor to suppose that that is useful either for a democratic or an oligarchic form of government which contributes to make them more purely so, but what will contribute to their duration. But our demagogues at present, to flatter the people, occasion frequent confiscations in the courts. For which reason those who have the welfare of the state really at heart should act directly opposite to what they do, and enact a law to prevent forfeitures from being divided amongst the people or paid into the treasury, but to have them set apart for sacred uses. For those who are of a bad disposition would not then be the less cautious, as their punishment would be the same and the community would not be so ready to condemn those whom they sat in judgment on when they were to get nothing by it. They should also take care that the causes which are brought before the public should be as few as possible, and punish with the utmost severity those who rashly brought an action against anyone. For it is not the commons but the nobles who are generally prosecuted. For in all things the citizens of the same state ought to be affectionate to each other, at least not to treat those who have the chief power in it as their enemies. Now, as the democracies which have been lately established are very numerous, and it is difficult to get the common people to attend the public assemblies without they are paid for it, this, when there is not a sufficient public revenue, is fatal to the nobles, for the deficiencies therein must be necessarily made up by taxes, confiscations, and fines imposed by corrupt courts of justice, which things have already destroyed many democracies. Whenever, then, the revenues of the state are small, 
there should be but few public assemblies and but few courts of justice. These, however, should have very extensive jurisdictions, but should continue sitting a few days only, for by this means the rich would not fear the expense, although they should receive nothing for their attendance, though the poor did, and judgment also would be given much better. For the rich will not choose to be long absent from their own affairs, but will willingly be so for a short time. And when there are sufficient revenues, a different conduct taught to be pursued from what the demagogues at present follow. For now they divide the surplus of the public money amongst the poor. These receive it and again want the same supply, while the giving it is like pouring water into a sieve. But the true patriot in a democracy ought to take care that the majority of the community are not too poor, for this is the cause of rapacity in that government. He therefore should endeavor that they may enjoy perpetual plenty. And as this also is advantageous to the rich, what can be saved out of the public money should be put by, and then divided at once amongst the poor, if possible, in such a quantity as may enable every one of them to purchase a little field, and, if that cannot be done, at least to give each of them enough to procure the implements of trade and husbandry. And if there is not enough for all to receive so much at once, then to divide it according to tribes or any other law it meant. In the meantime, let the rich pay them for necessary services, but not be obliged to find them in useless amusements. And something like this was the manner in which they managed at Carthage, and preserved the affections of the people. For by continually sending some of their community into colonies, they procured plenty. It is also worthy of a sensible and generous nobility to divide the poor amongst them and supplying them with what is necessary, induce them to work, or to imitate the conduct of the people at Tarentum. For they, permitting the poor to partake in common of everything which is needful for them, gain the affections of the commonalty. They have also two different ways of electing their magistrates, for some are chosen by vote, others by lot. By the last, that the people at large may have some share in the administration, by the former that the state may be well governed. The same may be accomplished if of the same magistrates you choose some by vote, others by lot, and thus much for the manner in which democracies ought to be established. Chapter 6 what has been already said will almost of itself sufficiently show how an oligarchy ought to be founded. For he who would frame such a state should have in his view a democracy to oppose it. For every species of oligarchy should be founded on principles diametrically opposite to some species of democracy. The first and best framed oligarchy is that which approaches near to what we call a free state in which there ought to be two different senses, the one high, the other low. From those who are within the latter, the ordinary officers of the state ought to be chosen. From the former, the supreme magistrates. Nor should any one be excluded from a part of the administration who was within the senses. 
which should be so regulated that the commonalty who are included in it should by means thereof be superior to those who have no share in the government. For those who are to have the management of public affairs ought always to be chosen out of the better sort of the people. Much in the same manner ought that oligarchy to be established, which is next in order. But as to that which is most opposite to a pure democracy, and approach us nearest to a dynasty and a tyranny, as it is of all others the worst, so it requires the greatest care and cashion to preserve it. For as bodies of sound and healthy constitutions and ships which are well manned and well found for sailing can bear many injuries without perishing, while a diseased body or a leaky ship with an indifferent crew cannot support the least shock. So the worst established governments want most looking after. A number of citizens is the preservation of a democracy. For these are opposed to those rights which are founded in rank. On the contrary, the preservation of an oligarchy depends upon the due regulation of the different orders in the society. Chapter 7 As the greater part of the community are divided into four sorts of people, husbandmen, mechanics, traders, and hired servants, and as those who are employed in war may likewise be divided into four, the horseman, the heavy-armed soldier, the light-arm, and the sailor, where the nature of the country can admit a great number of horse. There a powerful oligarchy may be easily established, for the safety of the inhabitants depends upon a force of that sort. But those who can support the expense of horsemen must be persons of some considerable fortune. Where the troops are chiefly heavy-armed, there an oligarchy, inferior in power to the other, may be established. For the heavy-armed are rather made up of men of substance than the poor. But the light-armed and the sailors always contribute to support a democracy. But where the number of these is very great and a sedition arises, the other parts of the community fight at a disadvantage. But a remedy for this evil is to be learned from skillful generals, who always mix a proper number of light-armed soldiers with their horse and heavy arm. For it is with those that the populace get the better of the men of fortune in an insurrection. For these being lighter are easily a match for the horse and the heavy arm. So that for an oligarchy to form a body of troops from these is to form it against itself. But as a city is composed of persons of different ages, some young and some old, the fathers should teach their sons, while they were very young, a light and easy exercise. But when they are grown up, they should be perfect in every warlike exercise. Now, the admission of the people to any share in the government should either be, as I said before, regulated by a census, or else, as at Thebes, allowed to those who for a certain time have ceased from any mechanic employment, or as at Massalia, where they are chosen according to their worth, whether citizens or foreigners. 
with respect to the magistrates of the highest rank which it may be necessary to have in a state, the services they are bound to do the public should be expressly laid down to prevent the common people from being desirous of accepting their employments and also to induce them to regard their magistrates with favor when they know what a price they pay for their honors. It is also necessary that the magistrates, upon entering into their offices, should make magnificent sacrifices and erect some public structure, that the people partaking of the entertainment, and seeing the city ornamented with votive gifts in their temples and public structures, may see with pleasure the stability of the government. Add to this also, that the nobles will have their generosity recorded. But now this is not the conduct which those who are at present at the head of an oligarchy pursue, but the contrary. For they are not more desirous of honor than of gain. For which reason such oligarchies may more properly be called little democracies. Thus 1321b we have explained on what principles a democracy and an oligarchy ought to be established. Chapter 8. After what has been said, I proceed next to treat particularly of the magistrates, of what nature they should be, how many, and for what purpose, as I have already mentioned. For without necessary magistrates no state can exist, nor without those which contribute to its dignity and good order can exist happily. Now it is necessary that in small states the magistrates should be few. In a large one, many also to know well what offices may be joined together and what ought to be separated. The first thing necessary is to establish proper regulators in the markets, for which purpose a certain magistrate should be appointed to inspect their contracts and preserve good order. For of necessity, in almost every city there must be both buyers and sellers to supply each other's mutual wants. And this is what is most productive of the comforts of life. For the sake of which men seem to have joined together in one community, a second care, and merely related to the first, is to have an eye both to the public and private edifices in the city, that they may be an ornament and also to take care of all buildings which are likely to fall, and to see that the highways are kept in proper repair, and also that the landmarks between different estates are preserved, that there may be no disputes on that account, and all other business of the same nature. Now, this business may be divided into several branches, over each of which in populous cities they appoint a separate person, one to inspect the buildings, another the fountains, another the harbors, and they are called the inspectors of the city. A third, which is very like the last and conversant nearly about the same objects, only in the country, is to take care of what is done out of the city. The officers who have this employment we call inspectors of the lands or inspectors of the woods. But the business of all three of them is the same. There must also be other officers appointed to receive the public revenue and to deliver it out to those who are in the different departments of the state. 
these are called receivers or queesters. There must also be another, before whom all private contracts and sentences of courts should be enrolled, as well as proceedings and declarations. Sometimes this employment is divided amongst many, but there is one supreme over the rest. These are called proctors, notaries, and the like. Next to these is an officer whose business is of all others the most necessary and yet most difficult. Namely, to take care that sentence is executed upon those who are condemned, and that every one pays the fines laid on him, and also to have the charge of those who are in prison. 1322 of this office is very disagreeable on account of the odium attending it so that no one will engage therein without it is made very profitable, or, if they do, will they be willing to execute it according to law. But it is most necessary, as it is of no service to pass judgment in any cause without that judgment is carried into execution. For without this, human society could not subsist for which reason it is best that this office should not be executed by one person, but by some of the magistrates of the other courts. In like manner, the taking care that those fines which are ordered by the judges are levied should be divided amongst different persons. And as different magistrates judge different causes, let the causes of the young be heard by the young. And as to those which are already brought to a hearing, let one person pass sentence and another see it executed. As, for instance, let the magistrates who have the care of the public buildings execute the sentence which the inspectors of the markets have passed, and the like in other cases. For by so much the less odium attends those who carry the laws into execution, by so much the easier will they be properly put in force. Therefore, for the same persons to pass the sentence and to execute it will subject them to general hatred. And if they pass it upon all, they will be considered as the enemies of all. Thus one person has often the custody of the prisoner's body, while another sees the sentence against him executed, as the eleven did at Athens. For which reason it is prudent to separate these offices, and to give great attention there unto as equally necessary with anything we have already mentioned. For it will certainly happen that men of character will decline accepting this office, and worthless persons cannot properly be entrusted with it, as having themselves rather an occasion for a guard than being qualified to guard others. This, therefore, ought by no means to be a separate office from others nor should it be continually allotted to any individuals but the young men. Where there is a city guard, the youths ought in turns to take these offices upon them. These, then, as the most necessary magistrates, ought to be first mentioned. Next to these are others no less necessary, but of much higher rank, for they ought to be men of great skill and fidelity. These are they who have the guard of the city, and provide everything that is necessary for war, whose business it is, both in war and peace, to defend the walls and the gates, 
and to take care to muster and marshal the citizens. Over all these, there are sometimes more officers, sometimes fewer. Thus, in little cities, there is only one whom they call either general or pole march. But where there are horse and light-armed troops and bowmen and sailors, they sometimes put distinct commanders over each of these, who again have others under them, according to their different divisions, all of which join together to make one military body. And thus much for this department, since some of the magistrates, if not all, have business with the public money. It is necessary that there should be other officers whose employment should be nothing else than to take an account of what they have and correct any mismanagement therein. But besides all these magistrates, there is one who is supreme over them all, who very often has in his own power the disposal of the public revenue and taxes, who presides over the people when the supreme power is in them. For there must be some magistrate who has a power to summon them together and to proceed as head of the state. These are sometimes called pre-advisors, but where there are many, more properly a council. These are nearly the civil magistrates which are requisite to a government. But there are other persons whose business is confined to religion, as the priests and those who are to take care of the temples, that they are kept in proper repair, or, if they fall down, that they may be rebuilt. And whatever else belongs to public worship, this charge is sometimes entrusted to one person, as in very small cities. In others it is delegated to many, and these distinct from the priesthood, as the builders or keepers of holy places, and officers of the sacred revenue. Next to these are those who are appointed to have the general care of all those public sacrifices to the tutelar god of the state, which the laws do not entrust to the priests. And these in different states have different appellations. To enumerate in few words the different departments of all those magistrates who are necessary. These are either religion, war, taxis, expenditures, markets, public buildings, harbors, highways. Belonging to the courts of justice, there are scribes to enroll private contracts, and there must also be guards set over the prisoners, others to see the law is executed, counsel on either side, and also others to watch over the conduct of those who are to decide the causes. Amongst the magistrates also may finally be reckoned those who are to give their advice in public affairs. But separate states, who are peculiarly happy and have leisure to attend to more minute particulars, and are very attentive to good order, require particular magistrates for themselves, such as those who have the government of the women, who are to see the laws are executed who take care of the boys and proceed over their education. To these may be added those who have the care of their gymnastic exercises, 1,323 their theaters, and every other public spectacle which there may happen to be. Some of these, however, are not of general use. As the governors of the women, for the poor are obliged to employ their wives and children in several offices for want of slaves. 
as there are three magistrates to whom some states entrust the supreme power, namely guardians of the laws, pre-advisors, and senators. Guardians of the laws shoot best to an aristocracy, pre-advisors to an oligarchy, and a senate to a democracy, and thus much briefly concerning all magistrates. Book 7 Chapter I He who proposes to make that inquiry which is necessary concerning what government is best, ought first to determine what manner of living is most eligible. For while this remains uncertain, it will also be equally uncertain what government is best. For, provided no unexpected accidents interfere, it is highly probable that those who enjoy the best government will live the most happily according to their circumstances. He ought, therefore, first to know what manner of life is most desirable for all, and afterwards whether this life is the same to the man and the citizen, or different, as I imagine that I have already sufficiently shown what sort of life is best in my popular discourses on that subject. I think I may very properly repeat the same here, as most certainly no one ever called in question the propriety of one of the divisions, namely, that as what is good, relative to man, may be divided into three sorts, what is external, what appertains to the body, and what to the soul, it is evident that all these must conspire to make a man happy. For no one would say that a man was happy who had no fortitude, no temperance, no justice, no prudence, but was afraid of the flies that flew round him, nor would abstain from the meanest theft if he was either hungry or dry, or would murder his dearest friend for farthing, and also was in every particular as wanting in his understanding as an infant or an idiot. These truths are so evident that all must agree to them. Though some may dispute about what quarterly and the degree, for they may think that a very little virtue is sufficient for happiness, but for riches, property, power, honor, and all such things, they endeavor to increase them without bounds. But to such we reply, that it is easy to prove from what experience teaches us in these cases, that these external goods produce not virtue, but virtue them, as to a happy life, whether it is to be found in pleasure or virtue or both. Certain it is, that those whose morals are most pure, and whose understandings are best cultivated, will enjoy more of it, although their fortune is but moderate than those do who own an exuberance of wealth, are deficient in those. And this utility any one who reflects may easily convince himself of. For whatsoever is external has its boundary as a machine, and whatsoever is useful in its success is either necessarily hurtful or at best useless to the possessor. But every good quality of the soul, the higher it is in degree, so much the more useful it is. If it is permitted on the subject to use the word useful as well as noble, it is also very evident 
that the accidents of each subject take place of each other, as the subjects themselves, of which we allow they are accidents, differ from each other in value, so that if the soul is more noble than any outward possession, as the body, both in itself and with respect to us, it must be admitted, of course, that the best accidents of each must follow the same analogy. Besides, it is for the sake of the soul that these things are desirable, and it is on this account that wise men should desire them, not the soul for them. Let us therefore be well assured that everyone enjoys as much happiness as he possesses virtue and wisdom, and acts according to their dictates. Since for this we have the example of God himself, who is completely happy, not from any external good, but in himself, and because such is his nature. For good fortune is something different from happiness, as every good which depends not on the mind is owing to chance or fortune. But it is not from fortune that anyone is wise and just. Hence it follows that that city is happiest which is the best and acts best. For no one can do well who acts not well. Nor can the deeds either of man or city be praiseworthy without virtue and wisdom. For whatsoever is just, or wise, or prudent in a man, the same things are just, wise, and prudent in a city. Thus much by way of introduction. For I could not but just touch upon the subject, though I could not go through a complete investigation of it, as it properly belongs to another question. Let us at present suppose so much that a man's happiest life, both as an individual and as a citizen, is a life of virtue, accompanied with those enjoyments which virtue usually procures. There are any who are not convinced by what I have said, their doubts shall be answered hereafter. At present we shall proceed according to our intended method. Chapter 2 It now remains for us to say whether the happiness of any individual man and the city is the same or different. But this also is evident. For whosoever supposes that riches will make a person happy, must place the happiness of the city in riches if it possesses them. Those who prefer a life which enjoys a tyrannic power over others will also think that the city which has many others under its command is most happy. Thus also if anyone approves a man for his virtue, he will think the most worthy city the happiest. But here there are two particulars which require consideration, one of which is whether it is the most eligible life to be a member of the community and enjoy the rights of a citizen, or whether to live as a stranger without interfering in public affairs, and also what form of government is to be preferred and what disposition of the state is best whether the whole community should be eligible to a share in the administration, or only the greater part, and some only, as this, therefore, is a subject of political examination and speculation, and not what concerns the individual, 
and the first of these is what we are at present engaged in, the one of these I am not obliged to speak to, the other is the proper business of my present design. It is evident that government must be the best which is so established, that every one therein may have it in his power to act virtuously and live happily. But some, who admit that a life of virtue is most eligible, still doubt which is preferable a public life of active virtue, or one entirely disengaged from what is without and spent in contemplation which some say is the only one worthy of a philosopher, and one of these two different modes of life both now and formerly seem to have been chosen by all those who were the most virtuous men. I mean the public or philosophic, and yet it is of no little consequence on which side the truth lies. For a man of sense must naturally incline to the better choice both as an individual and a citizen. Others hold the quite contrary opinion and think that a public and active life is the only life for man, for that private persons have no opportunity of practicing any one virtue more than they have who are engaged in public life, the management of the state. Others hold the quite contrary opinion and think that a public and active life is the only life for man. For that private persons have no opportunity of practicing any one virtue more than they have who are engaged in public life, the management of the 1324B state. These are their sentiments. Others say that a tyrannical and despotical mode of government is the only happy one. For even amongst some free states, the object of their laws seems to be to tyrannize over their neighbors, so that the generality of political institutions, wheresoever dispersed, if they have any one common object in view, have all of them this, to conquer and govern. It is evident, both from the laws of the Lacedaemonians and Cretans, as well as by the manner in which they educated their children, that all which they had in view was to make them soldiers. Besides, among all nations, those who have power enough and reduce others to servitude are honored on that account. As were the Scythians, Persians, Thracians, and Gauls. With some there are laws to heighten the virtue of courage. Thus they tell us that at Carthage they allowed every person to wear as many rings for distinction as he had served campaigns. There was also a law in Macedonia that a man who had not himself killed an enemy should be obliged to wear a halter. Among the Scythians, at a festival, none were permitted to drink out of the cup was carried about who had not done the same thing. Among the Iberians, a warlike nation, they fix as many columns upon a man's tomb as he had slain enemies. And among different nations, different things of this sort prevail, some of them established by law, others by custom. Probably it may seem too absurd to those who are willing to take this subject into their consideration to inquire whether it is the business of a legislator to be able to point out by what means a state may govern and tyrannize over its neighbors, whether they will or will not. 
for how can that belong either to the politician or legislator which is unlawful? For that cannot be lawful which is done not only justly, but unjustly also. For a conquest may be unjustly made, but we see nothing of this in the arts. For it is the business neither of the physician or the pilot to use either persuasion or force, the one to his patient, the other to his passengers. And yet many seem to think a despotic government is a political one, and what they would not allow to be just or proper. If exercised over themselves, they will not blush to exercise over others. For they endeavor to be wisely governed themselves, but think it of no consequence whether others are so or not. But a despotic power is absurd, except only where nature has framed the one party for dominion, the other for subordination. And therefore no one ought to assume it over all in general, but those only which are the proper objects thereof. Thus no one should hunt men either for food or sacrifice, but what is fit for those purposes, and these are wild animals which are eatable. Now a city which is well governed might be very happy in itself while it enjoyed a good system of laws, although it should happen to be so situated as to have no connection with any other state, though its constitution should not be framed for war or conquest for it would then have no occasion for these. It is evident, therefore, that the business of war is to be considered as commendable, not as a final end, but as the means of procuring it. It is the duty of a good legislator to examine carefully into his state and the nature of the people and how they may partake of every intercourse of a good life and of the happiness which results from it. And in this respect, some laws and customs differ from others. It is also the duty of a legislator. He has any neighboring states to consider in what manner he shall oppose each of them, or what good offices he shall show them. But what should be the final end of the best governments will be considered hereafter. Chapter 3 we will now speak to those who, while they agree that a life of virtue is most eligible, yet differ in the use of it addressing ourselves to both these parties. For there are some who disapprove of all political governments and think that the life of one who is really free is different from the life of a citizen and of all others most eligible. Others again think that the citizen is the best and that it is impossible for him who does nothing to be well employed, but that virtuous activity and happiness are the same thing. Now both parties in some particular say what is right, in others what is wrong, thus, that the life of a freeman is better than the life of a slave is true. For a slave, as a slave, is employed in nothing honorable. For the common servile employments which he is commanded to perform have nothing virtuous in them. But, on the other hand, it is not true that a submission to all sorts of governments is slavery. 
For the government of free men differs not more from the government of slaves than slavery and freedom differ from each other in their nature. And how they do has been already mentioned. To prefer doing of nothing to virtuous activity is also wrong, for happiness consists in action, and many noble ends are produced by the actions of the just and wise. From what we have already determined on this subject, someone probably may think that supreme power is of all things best, as that will enable a man to command very many useful services from others so that he who can obtain this ought not to give it up to another, but rather to seize it. And for this purpose, the father should have no attention or regard for the son, or the son for the father, or friend for friend. For what is best is most eligible. But to be a member of the community and be in felicity is best. What these persons advance might probably be true. If the supreme good was certainly theirs who plunder and use violence to others, but it is most unlikely that it should be so, for it is a mere supposition, for it does not follow that their actions are honorable who thus assume the supreme power over others, without they were by nature as superior to them as a man to a woman, a father to a child, a master to a slave so that he who so far forsakes the paths of virtue can never return back from whence he departed from them. For amongst equals whatever is fair and just thought to be reciprocal, for this is equal and right, but that equals should not partake of what is equal or like to like is contrary to nature, but whatever is contrary to nature is not right. Therefore, if there is any one superior to the rest of the community in virtue and abilities for active life, him it is proper to follow, him it is right to obey, but the one alone will not do, but must be joined to the other also. And if we are right in what we have now said, it follows that happiness consists in virtuous activity and that both with respect to the community as well as the individual an active life is the happiest. Not that an active life must necessarily refer to other persons as something, or that those studies alone are practical which are pursued to teach others what to do. For those are much more so whose final object is in themselves, and to improve the judgment and understanding of the man. For virtuous activity has an end, therefore is something practical. Nay, those who contrive the plan which others follow are more particularly said to act, and are superior to the workmen who execute their designs. But it is not necessary that states which choose to have no intercourse with others should remain inactive. For the several members thereof may have mutual intercourse with each other, for there are many opportunities for this among the different citizens. The same thing is true of every individual. For was it otherwise, neither could the deity or the universe be perfect, to neither of whom can anything external separately exist, 
Hence it is evident that that very same life which is happy for each individual is happy also for the state and every member of it. Chapter 4 As I have now finished what was introductory to this subject, and considered at large the nature of other states, it now remains that I should first say what ought to be the establishment of a city which one should form according to one's wish. For no good state can exist without a moderate proportion of what is necessary. Many things therefore ought to be forethought of as desirable, but none of them such as are impossible. I mean relative to the number of citizens and the extent of the territory. For as other artificers, such as the weaver and the shipwright, ought to have such materials as are fit for their work, since so much the better they are, by so much superior will the work itself necessarily be. So also ought the legislator and politician endeavor to procure proper materials for the business they have in hand. Now the first and principal instrument of the politician is the number of the people. He should therefore know how many and what they naturally ought to be. In like manner the country, how large and what it is. Most persons think that it is necessary for a city to be large to be happy. But should this be true, they cannot tell what is a large one and what a small one. For according to the multitude of the inhabitants, they intimate the greatness of it. But they ought rather to consider its strength than its numbers. For a state has a certain object in view, and from the power which it has in itself of accomplishing it, its greatness ought to be estimated. As a person might say, that Hippocrates was a greater physician, though not a greater man, than one that exceeded him in the size of his body. This too is evident from fact that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to govern properly a very numerous body of men. For of all the states which appear well governed, we find not one where the rights of a citizen are open to an indiscriminate multitude. This too is evident from fact that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to govern properly a very numerous body of men. For of all the states which appear well governed, we find not one where the rights of a citizen are open to an indiscriminate multitude. And this is also evident from the nature of the thing. For as law is a certain order, so good law is of course a certain good order, but too large a multitude are incapable of this, unless under the government of that divine power which comprehends the universe. Not but that, where quite we and variety are usually essential to beauty, the perfection of a city consists in the largeness of it as far as that largeness is consistent with that order already mentioned. But still there is a determinate size to all cities, as well as everything else, whether animals, plants, or machines, for each of these, if they are neither too little nor too big have their proper powers, but when they have not their due growth, or are badly constructed, as a ship is span long is not properly a ship, 
nor one of two furlings length, but when it is of a fit size. For either from its smallness or from its largeness it may be quite useless. So is it with a city. One that is too small has not in itself the power of self-defense, but this is essential to a city. One that is too large is capable of self-defense in what is necessary, but then it is a nation and not a city, for it will be very difficult to accommodate a form of government to it. For who would choose to be the general of such an unwieldy multitude, or who could be their herald but a stentor? The first thing therefore necessary is that a city should consist of such numbers as will be sufficient to enable the inhabitants to live happily in their political community. And it follows that the more the inhabitants succeed that necessary number, the greater will the city be. But this must not be, as we have already said, without bounds. But what is its proper limit experience will easily show. And this experience is to be collected from the actions both of the governors and the governed. Now, as it belongs to the first to direct the inferior magistrates and to act as judges, it follows that they can neither determine causes with justice nor issue their orders with propriety without they know the characters of their fellow citizens. So that whenever this happens not to be done in these two particulars, the state must of necessity be badly managed. For in both of them it is not right to determine too hastily and without proper knowledge, which must evidently be the case where the number of the citizens is too many. Besides, it is more easy for strangers and sojourners to assume the rights of citizens, as they will easily escape detection in so great a multitude. It is evident, then, that the best boundary for a city is that wherein the numbers are the greatest possible, that they may be the better able to be sufficient in themselves, while at the same time they are not too large to be under the eye and government of the magistrates. And thus let us determine the extent of a city. Chapter 5 What we have said concerning a city may nearly be applied to a country, for as to what soil it should be, Every one evidently will commend it if it is such as is sufficient in itself to furnish what will make the inhabitants happy, for which purpose it must be able to supply them with all the necessaries of life. For it is the having these in plenty, without any want, which makes them content. As to its extent, it should be such as may enable the inhabitants to live at their ease with freedom and temperance. Whether we have done right or wrong in fixing this limit to the territory shall be considered more minutely hereafter, when we come particularly to inquire into property, and what fortune is requisite for a man to live on, and how and in what manner they ought to employ. For there are many doubts upon this question, while each party insists upon their own plan of life being carried to an excess the one of severity, the other of indulgence. What the situation of the country should be is not difficult to determine, in some particulars respecting that we ought to be advised by those who are skillful in military affairs. 
it should be difficult of access to an enemy, but easy to the inhabitants. And as we said, that the number of inhabitants ought to be such as can come under the eye of the magistrate, so should it be with the country, for then it is easily defended. As to the position of the city, if one could place it to one's wish, it is convenient to fix it on the seaside. With respect to the country, one situation which it ought to have has been already mentioned, namely, that it should be so placed as easily to give assistance to all places, and also to receive the necessaries of life from all paths, and also wood, or any other materials which may happen to be in the country. Chapter 6 But with respect to placing a city in the neighborhood of the sea, there are some who have many doubts whether it is serviceable or hurtful to a well-regulated state. For they say that the resort of persons brought up under different system of government is disserviceable to the state, as well by impeding the laws as by their numbers. For a multitude of merchants must necessarily arise from their trafficking backward and forward upon the seas which will hinder the well-governing of the city. But if this inconvenience should not arise, it is evident that it is better, both on account of safety and also for the easier acquisition of the necessaries of life, that both the city and the country should be near the sea. For it is necessary that those who are to sustain the attack of the enemy should be ready with their assistance both by land and by sea, and to oppose any inroad both ways if possible, but if not, at least where they are most powerful, which they may do while they possess both. A maritime situation is also useful for receiving from others what your own country will not produce, and exporting those necessaries of your own growth which are more than you have occasion for. But a city ought to traffic to supply its own wants, and not the wants of others. For those who themselves furnish an open market for every one, do it for the sake of gain, which it is not proper for a well-established state to do, neither should they encourage such a commerce. As to a naval power, it is by no means doubtful that it is necessary to have one to a certain degree, and this not only for the sake of the city itself but also because it may be necessary to appear formidable to some of the neighboring states, or to be able to assist them as well by sea as by land. But to know how great that force should be, the health of the state should be inquired into, and if that appears vigorous and enables her to take the lead of other communities, it is necessary that her force should correspond with her actions. As to a naval power, it is by no means doubtful that it is necessary to have one to a certain degree. And this not only for the sake of the 1327B city itself, but also because it may be necessary to appear formidable to some of the neighboring states, or to be able to assist them as well by sea as by land. But to know how great that force should be, the health of the state should be inquired into and if that appears vigorous and enables her to take the lead of other communities, 
it is necessary that her force should correspond with her actions. As for that multitude of people which a maritime power creates, they are by no means necessary to a state, nor ought they to make a part of the citizens. For the mariners and infantry, who have the command, are free men, and upon these depends a naval engagement. But when there are many servants and husbandmen, there they will always have a number of sailors, as we now see happens to some states, as in Heraclea, where they man many triremes, though the extent of their city is much inferior to some others. And thus we determine concerning the country, the port, the city, the sea, and a maritime power. As to the number of the citizens, what that ought to be we have already said. Chapter 7. We now proceed to point out what natural disposition the members of the community ought to be of. But this anyone will easily perceive who will cast his eye over the states of Greece, of all others the most celebrated, and also the other different nations of this habitable world. Those who live in cold countries, as the north of Europe, are full of courage, but wanting in understanding and the arts. Therefore they are very tenacious of their liberty. But, not being politicians, they cannot reduce their neighbors under their power. But the Asiatics, whose understandings are quick, and who are conversant in the arts, are deficient in courage, and therefore are always conquered and the slaves of others. But the Grecians, place as it were between these two boundaries, so partake of them both as to be at the same time both courageous and sensible, for which reason Greece continues free and governed in the best manner possible and capable of commanding the whole world, could they agree upon one system of policy. Now this is the difference between the Grecians and other nations, that the latter have but one of these qualities, whereas in the former they are both happily blended together. Hence it is evident that those persons ought to be both sensible and courageous who will readily obey a legislator, the object of whose laws is virtue. As to what some persons say, that the military must be mild and tender to those they know, but severe and cruel to those they know not. It is courage which makes any one lovely, for that it is the faculty of the soul which we most admire. As a proof of this, our resentment rises higher against our friends and acquaintance than against those we know not. For which reason Archelaus accusing his friends says very properly to himself, Shall my friends insult me? The spirit of freedom and command also is what all inherit who are of this disposition, for courage is commanding and invincible. It also is not right for anyone to say that you should be severe to those you know not, for this behavior is proper for no one. Nor are those who are of a noble disposition harsh in their manners, excepting only to the wicked. And when they are particularly so, it is, as has been already said, against their friends, when they think they have injured them, which is agreeable to reason. For when those who think they ought to receive a favor from anyone do not receive it, 
beside the injury done them, they consider what they are deprived of. Hence the saying, cruel are the wars of brothers. And this, those who have greatly loved do greatly hate. And thus we have nearly determined how many the inhabitants of a city ought to be, and what their natural disposition, and also the country how large, and of what sort it is necessary. I say nearly, because it is needless to endeavor at as great accuracy in those things which are the objects of the senses as in those which are inquired into by the understanding only. Chapter 8. As in natural bodies those things are not admitted to be pots of them without which the whole would not exist, so also it is evident that in a political state everything that is necessary thereunto is not to be considered as a part of it, nor any other community from whence one whole is made. For one thing ought to be common and the same to the community, whether they partake of it equally or unequally, as, for instance, food, land, or the like. But when one thing is for the benefit of one person, and another for the benefit of another, in this there is nothing like a community, excepting that one makes it and the other uses it. As, for instance, between any instrument employed in making any work, and the workman, as there is nothing common between the house and the builder, but the art of the builder is employed on the house. Thus property is necessary for states, but property is no part of the state, though many species of it have life. But a city is a community of equals for the purpose of enjoying the best life possible. But the happiest life is the best, which consists in the perfect practice of virtuous energies. As therefore some persons have great others little or no opportunity of being employed in these. It is evident that this is the cause of the difference there is between the different cities and communities there are to be found. For while each of these endeavor to acquire what is best by various and different means, they give rise to different modes of living and different forms of government. We are now to consider what those things are without which a city cannot possibly exist. For what we call parts of the city must of necessity inhue in it. And this we shall plainly understand. If we know the number of things necessary to a city, first, the inhabitants must have food. Secondly, arts, for many instruments are necessary in life. Thirdly, arms, for it is necessary that the community should have an armed force within themselves both to support their government against those of their own body who might refuse obedience to it, and also to defend it from those who might attempt to attack it from without. Fourthly, a certain revenue, as well for the internal necessities of the state as for the business of war. Fifthly, which is indeed the chief concern, a religious establishment. Sixthly, in order, but first of all in necessity a court to determine both criminal and civil causes. These things are absolutely necessary, so to speak, in every state. For a city is a number of people not accidentally met together, but with a purpose of ensuring to themselves sufficient independency and self-protection. 
and if anything necessary for these purposes is wanting, it is impossible that in such a situation these ends can be obtained. It is necessary therefore that a city should be capable of acquiring all these things. For this purpose a proper number of husbandmen are necessary to procure food, also artificers and soldiers, and rich men, and priests and judges, to determine what is right and proper. Chapter 9 Having determined thus far, it remains that we consider whether all these different employments shall be open to all. For it is possible to continue the same persons always husbandmen, artificers, judges, or council lords. Or shall we appoint different persons to each of those employments which we have already mentioned? Or shall some of them be appropriated to particulars, and others of course common to all? But this does not take place in every state. For, as we have already said, it is possible that all may be common to all or not, but only common to some. And this is the difference between one government and another. For in democracies, the whole community partakes of everything, but in oligarchies, it is different. Since we are inquiring what is the best government possible, and it is admitted to be that in which the citizens are happy. And that, as we have already said, it is impossible to obtain happiness without virtue. It follows that in the best governed states, where the citizens are really men of intrinsic and not relative goodness, none of them should be permitted to exercise any mechanic employment or follow merchandise as being ignoble and destructive to virtue. Neither should they be husbandmen, that they may be at leisure to improve in virtue and perform the duty they owe to the state, with respect to the employments of a soldier, a senator, and a judge, which are evidently necessary to the community. Shall they be allotted to different persons, or shall the same person execute both? This question, too, is easily answered, for in some cases the same persons may execute them, in others they should be different, where the different employments require different abilities, as when courage is wanting for one, judgment for the other, there they should be allotted to different persons, but when it is evident that it is impossible to oblige those who have arms in their hands, and can insist on their own terms, to be always under command. There these different employments should be trusted to one person. For those who have arms in their hands have it in their option whether they will or will not assume the supreme power. To these two namely, those who have courage and judgment the government must be entrusted, but not in the same manner, but as nature directs. What requires courage to the young? What requires judgment to the old? For with the young is courage, with the old is wisdom. Thus each will be allotted the part they are fit for according to their different merits. It is also necessary that the landed property should belong to these men. For it is necessary that the citizens should be rich, and these are the men proper for citizens. 
for no mechanic ought to be admitted to the rights of a citizen, nor any other sort of people whose employment is not entirely noble, honorable, and virtuous. This is evident from the principle we at first set out with. For to be happy it is necessary to be virtuous. And no one should say that a city is happy while he considers only one part of its citizens, but for that purpose he ought to examine into all of them. It is evident, therefore, that the landed property should belong to these, though it may be necessary for them to have husbandmen, either slaves, barbarians, or servants. There remains of the different classes of the people whom we have enumerated, the priests, for these evidently compose a rank by themselves. For neither are they to be reckoned amongst the husbandmen nor the mechanics. For reverence to the gods is highly becoming every state. And since the citizens have been divided into orders, the military and the council, and it is proper to offer due worship to the gods, and since it is necessary that those who are employed in their service should have nothing else to do, let the business of the priesthood be allotted to those who are in years. We have now shown what is necessary to the existence of a city, and of what pots it consists, and that husbandmen, mechanic, and mercenary servants are necessary to a city, but that the pots of it are soldiers and sailors, and that these are always different from those, but from each other only occasionally. Chapter 10 It seems neither now nor very lately to have been known to those philosophers who have made politics their study, that a city ought to be divided by families into different orders of men, and that the husbandmen and soldiers should be kept separate from each other which custom is even to this day preserved in Egypt and in Crete. Also Sesestris having found it in Egypt, Minas and Crete, common meals seem also to have been an ancient regulation and to have been established in Crete during the reign of Minas and in a still more remote period in Italy. For those who are the best judges in that country say that one Italis being king of Anotria, from whom the people, changing their names, were called Italians instead of Venetrians, and that part of Europe was called Italy which is bounded by the Silitic Gulf on the one side and the Lametic on the other, the distance between which is about half a day's journey. This Italis, they relate, made the Venetrians, who were formerly shepherds, husbandmen, and gave them different laws from what they had before and to have been the first who established common meals, for which reason some of his descendants still use them, and observe some of his laws. Apici inhabit that part which lies towards the Tyrrhenian Sea, who both now are and formerly were called Dawsonians. The Cones inhabited the part toward Iapigia and the Ionian Sea, which is called Sirtis. These Cones were descended from the Enotrians. Hence arose the custom of common meals, but the separation of the citizens into different families from Egypt. For the reign of Sesostris is of much higher antiquity than that of Minos, as we ought to think that most other things were found out in a long, 
nay, even in a boundless time reason teaching us that want would make us first invent that which was necessary, and, when that was obtained, then those things which were requisite for the conveniences and ornament of life, so should we conclude the same with respect to a political state. Now everything in Egypt bears the marks of the most remote antiquity, for these people seem to be the most ancient of all others, and to have acquired laws and political order. We should therefore make a proper use of what is told us of them, and endeavor to find out what they have omitted. We have already said that the landed property ought to belong to the military and those who partake of the government of the state, and that therefore the husbandmen should be a separate order of people, and how large and of what nature the country ought to be. We will first treat of the division of the land and of the husbandmen, how many and of what sort they ought to be. It's we by no means hold that property ought to be common, as some persons have said, only thus far, in friendship, it should be their custom to let no citizen want subsistence. As to common meals, it is in general agreed that they are proper in well-regulated cities. My reasons for approving of them shall be mentioned hereafter. They are what all the citizens ought to partake of. But it will not be easy for the poor, out of what is their own, to furnish as much as they are ordered to do, and supply their own house besides. The expense also of religious worship should be defrayed by the whole state. Of necessity, therefore, the land ought to be divided into two parts, one of which should belong to the community in general, the other to the individuals separately. And each of these pots should again be subdivided into two. Half of that which belongs to the public should be appropriated to maintain the worship of the gods, the other half to support the common meals. Half of that which belongs to the individuals should be at the extremity of the country, the other half near the city, so that these two portions being allotted to each person, all would partake of land in both places, which would be both equal and right and induce them to act in concert with greater harmony in any war with their neighbors. For when the land is not divided in this manner, one party neglects the inroads of the enemy on the borders, the other makes it a matter of too much consequence and more than is necessary. For which reason, in some places there is a law which forbids the inhabitants of the borders to have any vote in the council when they are debating upon a war which is made against them as their private interest might prevent their voting impartially. Thus therefore the country ought to be divided and for the reasons before mentioned. Could one have one's choice, the husbandmen should by all means be slaves, not of the same nation or men of any spirit. For thus they would be laborious in their business, and safe from attempting any novelties. Next to these barbarian servants are to be preferred. Similar in natural disposition to these we have already mentioned. Of these, let those who are to cultivate the private property of the individual belong to that individual and those who are to cultivate the public territory belong to the public. In what manner these slaves ought to be used, 
and for what reason it is very proper that they should have the promise of their liberty made them, as a reward for their services, shall be mentioned hereafter. Chapter 11 We have already mentioned that both the city and all the country should communicate both with the sea and the continent as much as possible. There are these four things which we should be particularly desirous of in the position of the city with respect to itself. In the first place, health is to be consulted as the first thing necessary. Now a city which fronts the east and receives the winds which blow from thence is esteemed most healthful. Next to this that which has a northern position is to be preferred, as best in winter. It should next be contrived that it may have a proper situation for the business of government and for defense in war. That in war the citizens may have easy access to it, but that it may be difficult of access to and hardly to be taken by the enemy. In the next place particularly, that there may be plenty of water and rivers near at hand. But if those cannot be found, very large cisterns must be prepared to save rain water, so that there may be no want of it in case they should be driven into the town in time of war. And as great care should be taken of the health of the inhabitants, the first thing to be attended to is that the city should have a good situation and a good position. The second is that they may have good water to drink, and this not be negligently taken care of. For what we chiefly and most frequently use for the support of the body must principally influence the health of it. And this influence is what the air and water naturally have. For which reason in all wise governments the waters ought to be appropriated to different purposes. And if they are not equally good, and if there is not a plenty of necessary water, that which is to drink should be separated from that which is for other uses. As to fortified places, what is proper for some governments is not proper for all. As, for instance, a lofty citadel is proper for a monarchy and an oligarchy. A city built upon a plain suits a democracy. Neither of these for an aristocracy, but rather many strong places. As to the form of private houses, those are thought to be best and most useful for their different purposes which are distinct and separate from each other, and built in the modern manner, after the plan of Hippodamus. But for safety in time of war, on the contrary, they should be built as they formerly were, for they were such that strangers could not easily find their way out of them and the method of access to them such as an enemy could with difficulty find out if he proposed to besiege them. A city therefore should have both these sorts of buildings, which may easily be contrived if any one will so regulate them as the planters do their rows of vines. Not that the buildings throughout the city should be detached from each other, only in some parts of it. Thus elegance and safety will be equally consulted. With respect to walls, those who say that a courageous people ought not to have any pay too much respect to obsolete notions, particularly as we may see those who pride themselves there in continually confuted by facts.
it is indeed disreputable for those who are equal, or nearly so, to the enemy, to endeavor to take refuge within their walls but since it very often happens, that those who make the attack are too powerful for the bravery and courage of those few who oppose them to resist. If you would not suffer the calamities of war and the insolence of the enemy, it must be thought the part of a good soldier to seek for safety under the shelter and protection of walls more especially since so many missile weapons and machines have been most ingeniously invented to besiege cities with. Indeed, to neglect surrounding a city with a wall would be similar to choosing a country which is easy of access to an enemy or leveling the eminences of it. Or as if an individual should not have a wall to his house lest it should be thought that the owner of it was a coward. Nor should this be left unconsidered, that those who have a city surrounded with walls may act both ways, either as if it had or as if it had not but where it has not, they cannot do this. If this is true, it is not only necessary to have walls, but care must be taken that they may be a proper ornament to the city, as well as a defense in time of war. Not only according to the old methods, but the modern improvements also. For as those who make offensive war endeavor by every way possible to gain advantages over their adversaries, so should those who are upon the defensive employ all the means already known, and such new ones as philosophy can invent, to defend themselves. For those who are well prepared are seldom first attacked. Chapter 12 As the citizens in general are to eat at public tables in certain companies, and it is necessary that the walls should have bulwarks and towers in proper places and at proper distances. It is evident that it will be very necessary to have some of these in the towers. Let the buildings for this purpose be made the ornaments of the walls. As to temples for public worship and the hall for the public tables of the chief magistrates, they ought to be built in proper places and contiguous to each other except those temples which the law or the oracle orders to be separate from all other buildings. And let these be in such a conspicuous eminence that they may have every advantage of situation and in the neighborhood of that part of the city which is best fortified. Adjoining to this place there ought to be a large square, like that which they call in Thessaly the Square of Freedom, in which nothing is permitted to be bought or sold into which no mechanic nor husbandman, nor any such person, should be permitted to enter, unless commanded by the magistrates. It will also be an ornament to this place if the gymnastic exercises of the elders are performed in it. It is also proper that for performing these exercises the citizens should be divided into distinct classes, according to their ages, and that the young persons should have proper officers to be with them, and that the seniors should be with the magistrates. For having them before their eyes would greatly inspire true modesty and ingenuous fear. There ought to be another square separate from this for buying and selling, which should be so situated as to be commodious for the reception of goods both by sea and land. As the citizens may be divided into magistrates and priests, 
is proper that the public tables of the priests should be in buildings near the temples. Those of the magistrates who preside over contracts, indictments, and such like, and also over the markets and the public streets near the square or some public way, I mean the square where things are bought and sold. For I intended the other for those who are at leisure and this for necessary business. The same order which I have directed here should be observed also in the country. For there also their magistrates such as the surveyors of the woods and overseers of the grounds must necessarily have their common tables and their towers for the purpose of protection against an enemy. There ought also to be temples erected at proper places, both to the gods and the heroes. But it is unnecessary to dwell longer and most minutely on these particulars, for it is by no means difficult to plan these things. It is rather so to carry them into execution. For the theory is the child of our wishes, but the practical part must depend upon fortune for which reason we shall decline saying anything farther upon these subjects. Chapter 13 We will now show of what numbers and of what sort of people a government ought to consist, that the state may be happy and well administered, as there are two particulars on which the excellence and perfection of everything depend, one of these is, that the object and end proposed should be proper, the other, that the means to accomplish it should be adapted to that purpose. For it may happen that these may either agree or disagree with each other. For the end we propose may be good, but in taking the means to obtain it we may err. At other times we may have the right and proper means in our power, but the end may be bad and sometimes we may mistake in both. As in the art of medicine, the physician does not sometimes know in what situation the body ought to be, to be healthy, nor what to do to procure the end he aims at. In every art and science, therefore, we should be master of this knowledge, namely, the proper end and the means to obtain it. Now it is evident that all persons are desirous to live well and be happy, but that some have the means thereof in their own power, others not, and this either through nature or fortune. For many ingredients are necessary to a happy life, but fewer to those who are of a good than to those who are of a bad disposition. There are others who continually have the means of happiness in their own power, but do not rightly apply them, since we propose to inquire what government is best, namely, that by which a state may be best administered, and that state is best administered where the people are the happiest. It is evident that happiness is a thing we should not be unacquainted with. Now. I have already said in my treatise on morals, if I may here make any use of what I have there shown, that happiness consists in the energy and perfect practice of virtue, and this not relatively, but simply. I mean by relatively, what is necessary in some certain circumstances, by simply, what is good and fair in itself, of the first sort are just punishments and restraints in a just cause. 
for they arise from virtue and are necessary, and on that account are virtuous. Though it is more desirable that neither any state or any individual should stand in need of them, but those actions which are intended either to procure honor or wealth are simply good, the others eligible only to remove an evil. These, on the contrary, are the foundation and means of relative good. A worthy man indeed will bear poverty, disease, and other unfortunate accidents with a noble mind. But happiness consists in the contrary to these now we have already determined in our treatise on morals, that he is a man of worth who considers what is good because it is virtuous as what is simply good. It is evident, therefore, that all the actions of such a one must be worthy and simply good. This has led some persons to conclude that the cause of happiness was external goods, which would be as if anyone should suppose that the playing well upon the lyre was owing to the instrument and not to the art. It necessarily follows from what has been said that some things should be ready at hand and others procured by the legislator, for which reason in founding a city we earnestly wish that there may be plenty of those things which are supposed to be under the dominion of fortune for some things we admit her to be mistress over. But for a state to be worthy and great is not only the work of fortune but of knowledge and judgment also. But for a state to be worthy it is necessary that those citizens which are in the administration should be worthy also. But as in our city every citizen is to be so, we must consider how this may be accomplished. For if this is what everyone could be, and not some individuals only, it would be more desirable. For then it would follow that what might be done by one might be done by all. Men are worthy in good three ways, by nature, by custom, by reason. In the first place, a man ought to be born a man and not any other animal. That is to say, he ought to have both a body and soul. But it avails not to be only born with some things, for custom makes great alterations. For there are some things in nature capable of alteration either way which are fixed by custom, either for the better or the worse. Now, other animals live chiefly a life of nature, and in very few things according to custom. But man lives according to reason also, which he alone is endowed with. Wherefore he ought to make all these accord with each other. For if men followed reason, and were persuaded that it was best to obey her, they would act in many respects contrary to nature and custom. What men ought naturally to be, to make good members of a community, I have already determined. The rest of this discourse therefore shall be upon education. For some things are acquired by habit, others by hearing them. Chapter 14 as every political community consists of those who govern and of those who are governed, let us consider whether during the continuance of their lives they ought to be the same persons or different. For it is evident that the mode of education should be adapted to this distinction. Now, 
If one man differed from another as much, as we believe, the gods and heroes differ from men. In the first place, being far their superiors in body, and secondly, in the soul, so that the superiority of the governors over the governed might be evident beyond a doubt. It is certain that it would be better for the one always to govern, the other always to be governed. But, as this is not easy to obtain, and kings are not so superior to those they govern as Silax informs us they are in India, it is evident that for many reasons it is necessary that all in their turns should both govern and be governed. For it is just that those who are equal should have everything alike. And it is difficult for a state to continue which is founded in injustice. For all those in the country who are desirous of innovation will apply themselves to those who are under the government of the rest, and such will be their numbers in the state, that it will be impossible for the magistrates to get the better of them. But that the governors ought to excel the governed is beyond a doubt. The legislator therefore ought to consider how this shall be, and how it may be contrived that all shall have their equal share in the administration. Now, with respect to this it will be first said, that nature herself has directed us in our choice, laying down the self-same thing when she has made some young, others old, the first of whom it becomes to obey, the latter to command. For no one when he is young is offended at his being under government, or thinks himself too good for it. More especially when he considers that he himself shall receive the same honors which he pays when he shall arrive at a proper age. In some respects it must be acknowledged that the governors and the governed are the same, in others they are different. It is therefore necessary that their education should be in 1,333 is some respect the same, in others different. As they say, that he will be a good governor who has first learned to obey. Now of governments, as we have already said, some are instituted for the sake of him who commands, others for him who obeys. Of the first sort is that of the master over the servant, of the latter that of free men over each other. Now some things which are commanded differ from others, not in the business, but in the end proposed thereby. For which reason many works, even of a servile nature, are not disgraceful for young free men to perform. For many things which are ordered to be done are not honorable or dishonorable so much in their own nature as in the end which is proposed, and the reason for which they are undertaken. Since then we have determined that the virtue of a good citizen and good governor is the same as of a good man, and that every one before he commands should have first obeyed. It is the business of the legislator to consider how his citizens may be good men, what education is necessary to that purpose, and what is the final object of a good life. The soul of man may be divided into two paths, that which has reason in itself, and that which hath not, but is capable of obeying its dictates, 
and according to the virtues of these two paths a man is said to be good. But of those virtues which are the ends, it will not be difficult for those to determine who adopt the division I have already given. For the inferior is always for the sake of the superior, and this is equally evident both in the works of art as well as in those of nature. But that is superior which has reason. Reason itself also is divided into two paths, in the manner we usually divide it, the theoretic and the practical, which division therefore seems necessary for this part also. The same analogy holds good with respect to actions, of which those which are of a superior nature are always to be chosen by those who have it in their power. For that it is always most eligible every one which will procure the best ends. Now life is divided into labor and rest, war and peace, and of what we do the objects are partly necessary and useful, partly noble, and we should give the same preference to these that we do to the different pots of the soul and its actions, as war to procure peace, labor, rest, and the useful, the noble, the politician, Therefore, who compose is a body of laws ought to extend his views to everything, the different parts of the soul and their actions, more particularly to those things which are of a superior nature and dense, and in the same manner, to the lives of men and their different actions. They ought to be fitted both for labor and war, but rather for rest and peace and also to do what is necessary and useful, but rather what is fair and noble. It is to those objects that the education of the children ought to tend, and of all the youths who want instruction, all the Grecian states which now seem best governed, and the legislators who founded those states, appear not to have framed their polity with a view to the best end, or to every virtue, in their laws and education but eagerly to have attended to what is useful and productive of gain. And nearly of the same opinion with these are some persons who have written lately, who, by praising the Lacedaemonian state, show they approve of the intention of the legislator in making war and victory the end of his government. But how contrary to reason this is, is easily proved by argument and has already been proved by facts, but as the generality of men desire to have an extensive command, that they may have everything desirable in the greater abundance. So Fibrin and others who have written on that state seem to approve of their legislator for having procured them an extensive command by continually inuring them to all sorts of dangers and hardships. For it is evident, since the Lacedaemonians have now no hope that the supreme power will be in their own hand, that neither are they happy nor was their legislator wise. This also is ridiculous, that while they preserve an obedience to their laws, and no one opposed their being governed by them, they lost the means of being honorable. But these people understand not rightly what sort of government it is which ought to reflect honor on the legislator. For a government of free men is nobler than despotic power and more consonant to virtue.
Moreover, neither should a city be thought happy, nor should a legislator be commended, because he has so trained the people as to conquer their neighbors. For in this there is a great inconvenience. Hence it is evident that upon this principle every citizen who can will endeavor to procure the supreme power in his own city. Which crime the Lacedaemonians accuse Pausanias of, though he enjoyed such great honors. Such reasoning and such laws are neither political, useful, nor true. But a legislator ought to instill those laws on the minds of men which are most useful for them, both in their public and private capacities. The rendering a people fit for war, that they may enslave their inferiors ought not to be the care of the legislator, but that they may not themselves be reduced to slavery by others. In the next place, he should take care that the object of his government is the safety of those who are under it, and not a despotism over all. In the third place, that those only are slaves who are fit to be only so. Reason indeed concurs with experience in showing that all the attention which the legislator pays to the business of war, and all other rules which he lays down, should have for their object rest and peace. Since most of those states which we usually see are preserved by war, but after they have acquired a supreme power over those around them, are ruined. For during peace, like a sword, they lose their brightness. The fault of which lies in the legislator, who never taught them how to be at rest. Chapter 15 As there is one in common to a man both as an individual and a citizen, it is evident that a good man and a good citizen must have the same object in view. It is evident that all the virtues which lead to rest are necessary. For, as we have often said, the end of war is peace, of labor, rest. But those virtues whose object is rest, and those also whose object is labor, are necessary for a liberal life and rest. For we want a supply of many necessary things that we may be at rest. A city therefore ought to be temperate brave and patient for according to the proverb rest is not for slaves but those who cannot bravely face danger are the slaves of those who attack them bravery therefore and patience are necessary for labor philosophy for rest and temperance and justice in both but these chiefly in time of peace and rest for war obliges men to be just and temperate. But the enjoyment of pleasure, with the rest of peace, is more apt to produce insolence. Those indeed who are easy in their circumstances and enjoy everything that can make them happy, have great occasion for the virtues of temperance and justice. Thus if there are, as the poets tell us, any inhabitants in the happy isles, to these a higher degree of philosophy, temperance, and justice will be necessary, as they live at their ease in the full plenty of every sensual pleasure. It is evident, therefore, that these virtues are necessary in every state that would be happy or worthy.
for he who is worthless can never enjoy real good, much less is he qualified to be at rest, but can appear good only by labor and being at war, but in peace and at rest the meanest of creatures. For which reason virtue should not be cultivated as the Lacedaemonians did. For they did not differ from others in their opinion concerning the supreme good, but in imagining this good was to be procured by a particular virtue. But since there are greater goods than those of war, it is evident that the enjoyment of those which are valuable than themselves should be desired, rather than those virtues which are useful in war. But how and by what means this is to be acquired is now to be considered. We have already assigned three causes on which it will depend. Nature, custom, and reason. Arid shown what sort of men nature must produce for this purpose. It remains then that we determine which we shall first begin by in education, reason or custom. For these are always to preserve the most entire harmony with each other. For it may happen that reason may err from the end proposed and be corrected by custom. In the first place, it is evident that in this as in other things, its beginning or production arises from some principle, and its end also arises from another principle, which is itself an end. Now, with us, reason and intelligence are the end of nature. Our production, therefore, and our manners ought to be accommodated to both these. In the next place, as the soul and the body are two distinct things, so also we see that the soul is divided into two parts, the reasoning and not reasoning, with their habits which are two in number, one belonging to each, namely appetite and intelligence. And as the body is in production before the soul, so is the not reasoning part of the soul before the reasoning, and this is evident. For anger, will, and desire are to be seen in children nearly as soon as they are born, but reason and intelligence spring up as they grow to maturity. The body, therefore, necessarily demands our care before the soul. Next, the appetites for the sake of the mind, the body for the sake of the soul. Chapter 16 If then the legislator ought to take care that the bodies of the children are as perfect as possible, his first attention ought to be given to matter remote. At what time and in what situation it is proper that the citizens should engage in the nuptial contract. Now, with respect to this alliance, the legislator ought both to consider the parties in their time of life, that they may grow old at the same part of time, and that their bodily powers may not be different. That is to say, the man being able to have children, but the woman too old to bear them, or, on the contrary, the woman be young enough to produce children, but the man too old to be a father. For from such a situation, discords and disputes continually arise. In the next place, with respect to the succession of children, there ought not to be too great an interval of time between them and their parents. For when there is, 
The parent can receive no benefit from his child's affection, or the child any advantage from his father's protection. Neither should the difference in years be too little, as great inconveniences may arise from it, as it prevents that proper reverence being shown to a father by a boy who considers him as nearly his equal in age, and also from the disputes it occasions in the economy of the family. But, to return from this digression, care ought to be taken that the bodies of the children may be such as will answer the expectations of the legislator. This also will be effected by the same means, since season for the production of children is determined not exactly, but to speak in general, namely, for the man till seventy years, and the woman till fifty, the entering into the marriage state, as far as time is concerned, should be regulated by these periods. It is extremely bad for the children when the father is too young. For in all animals whatsoever the pots of the young are imperfect, and are more likely to be productive of females than males, and diminutive also in size. The same thing of course necessarily holds true in men, as a proof of this you may see in those cities where the men and women usually marry very young, the people in general are very small and ill-framed. In childbirth also the women suffer more, and many of them die, and thus some persons tell us the oracle of Trazanium should be explained, as if it referred to the many women who were destroyed by two early marriages, and not their gathering their fruits too soon. It is also conducive to temperance not to marry too soon, for women who do so are apt to be intemperate. It also prevents the bodies of men from acquiring their full size if they marry before their growth is completed. For this is the determinate period which prevents any further increase, for which reason the proper time for a woman to marry is 18, for a man 37, a little more or less for when they marry at that time their bodies are in perfection, and they will also cease to have children at a proper time. And moreover, with respect to the succession of the children, if they have them at the time which may reasonably be expected, they will be just arriving into perfection when their parents are sinking down under the load of seventy years, and thus much for the time which is proper for marriage. But moreover, a proper season of the year should be observed, as many persons do now, and appropriate the winter for this business. The married couple ought also to regard the precepts of physicians and naturalists, each of whom have treated on these subjects. What is the fit disposition of the body will be better mentioned when we come to speak of the education of the child. We will just slightly mention a few particulars. Now, there is no occasion that any one should have the habit of body of a wrestler to be either a good citizen, or to enjoy a good constitution, or to be the father of healthy children. Neither should he be infirm or too much dispirited by misfortunes, but between both these, he ought to have a habit of labor, but not of too violent labor nor should that be confined to one object only, as the wrestler's is, but to such things as are proper for free men.
These things are equally necessary both for men and women. Women with child should also take care that their diet is not too sparing and that they use sufficient exercise, which it will be easy for the legislator to effect if he commands them once every day to repair to the worship of the gods who are supposed to precede over matrimony. But, contrary to what is proper for the body, the mind ought to be kept as tranquil as possible. For as plants partake of the nature of the soil, so does the child receive much of the disposition of the mother. With respect to the exposing or bringing up of children, let it be a law that nothing imperfect or maimed shall be brought up. As the proper time has been pointed out for a man and a woman to enter into the marriage state, so also let us determine how long it is advantageous for the community that they should have children. For as the children of those who are too young are imperfect both in body and mind, so also those whose parents are too old are weak in both, while therefore the body continues in perfection, which as some poets say, who reckon the different periods of life by sevens is till fifty years, or four or five more, the children may be equally perfect. But when the parents are past that age, it is better they should have no more, with respect to any connection between a man and a woman, or woman and a man. When either of the parties are betrothed, let it be held in utter detestation on any pretext whatsoever. But should any one be guilty of such a thing after the marriage is consummated, let his infamy be as great as his guilt deserves. Chapter 17 When a child is born, it must be supposed that the strength of its body will depend greatly upon the quality of its food. Now whoever will examine into the nature of animals, and also observe those people who are very desirous their children should acquire warlike habits will find that they feed them chiefly with milk, as being best accommodated to their bodies, but without wine, to prevent any distempts. Those motions also which are natural to their age are very serviceable, and to prevent any of their limbs from being crooked, on account of their extreme ductility, some people even now use particular machines that their bodies may not be distorted. It is also useful to injure them to the cold when they are very little, for this is very serviceable for their health, and also to injure them to the business of war, for which reason it is customary with many of the barbarians to dip their children in rivers when the water is cold, with others to clothe them very slightly, as among the Celts. For whatever it is possible to accustom children to, it is best to accustom them to it at first, but to do it by degrees. Besides, boys have naturally a habit of loving the cold, on account of the heat, these, then, and such like things ought to be the first object of our attention. The next stage to this continues till the child is five years old, during which time it is best to teach him nothing at all, not even necessary labor lest it should hinder his growth. 
but he should be accustomed to use so much motion as not to acquire a lazy habit of body, which he will get by various means and by play also. His play also ought to be neither illiberal nor too laborious nor lazy. Their governors and preceptors also should take care what sort of tales and stories it may be proper for them to hear. For all these ought to pave the way for their future instruction. For which reason the generality of their play should be imitations of what they are afterwards to do seriously. They to do wrong who forbid by laws the disputes between boys and their quarrels. For they contribute to increase their growth as they are a sort of exercise to the body. For the struggles of the heart and the compression of the spirits give strength to those who labor, which happens to boys in their disputes. The preceptors also ought to have an eye upon their manner of life and those with whom they converse, and to take care that they are never in the company of slaves. At this time, until they are seven years old, it is necessary that they should be educated at home. It is also very proper to banish, both from their hearing and sight, everything which is illiberal and the like. Indeed, it is as much the business of the legislator as anything else, to banish every indecent expression out of the state. For from a permission to speak whatever is shameful, very quickly arises the doing it, and this particularly with young people, for which reason let them never speak nor hear any such thing. But if it appears that any freeman has done or said anything that is forbidden before he is of age to be thought fit to partake of the common meals, let him be punished by disgrace and stripes. But if a person above that age does so, let him be treated as you would a slave, on account of his being infamous. Since we forbid his speaking everything which is forbidden, it is necessary that he neither sees obscene stories nor pictures. The magistrates therefore are to take care that there are no statues or pictures of anything of this nature, except only to those gods to whom the law permits them and to which the law allows persons of a certain age to pay their devotions, for themselves, their wives, and children. It should also be illegal for young persons to be present either at iamics or comedies before they are arrived at that age when they are allowed to partake of the pleasures of the table. Indeed, a good education will preserve them from all the evils which attend on these things. We have at present just touched upon the subject. It will be our business hereafter, when we properly come to it, to determine whether this care of children is unnecessary, or, if necessary, in what manner it must be done. Present we have only mentioned it as necessary. Probably the saying of Theodora's, the tragic actor, was not a bad one, that he would permit no one, not even the meanest actor, to go upon the stage before him that he might first engage the ear of the audience. The same thing happens both in our connections with men and things. What we meet with first pleases best, for which reason children should be kept strangers to everything which is bad, more particularly whatsoever is loose and offensive to good manners. When five years are accomplished, 
the two necks may be very properly employed in being spectators of those exercises they will afterwards have to learn. There are two periods into which education ought to be divided, according to the age of the child. The one is from his being seven years of age to the time of puberty. The other from thence till he is one and twenty. For those who divide ages by the number seven are in general wrong. It is much better to follow the division of nature. For every art and every instruction is intended to complete what nature has left defective. We must first consider if any regulation whatsoever is requisite for children. In the next place, if it is advantageous to make it a common care, or that everyone should act therein as he pleases, which is the general practice in most cities. In the third place, what it ought to be. Book 8. Chapter I. No one can doubt that the magistrate ought greatly to interest himself in the care of youth. For where it is neglected, it is hurtful to the city. For every state ought to be governed according to its particular nature. For the form and manners of each government are peculiar to itself. And these, as they originally established it, so they usually still preserve it. For instance, democratic forms and manners of democracy, oligarchic and oligarchy, but universally, the best manners produce the best government. Besides, as in every business and art, there are some things which men are to learn first and be made accustomed to, which are necessary to perform their several works. So it is evident that the same thing is necessary in the practice of virtue. As there is one end in view in every city, it is evident that education ought to be one and the same in each, and that this should be a common care and not the individuals, as it now is, when every one takes care of his own children separately, and their instructions are particular also, each person teaching them as they please. But what ought to be engaged in ought to be common to all. Besides, no one ought to think that any citizen belongs to him in particular, but to the state in general. For each one is a part of the state, and it is the natural duty of each part to regard the good of the whole, and for this the Lacedaemonians may be praised. For they give the greatest attention to education and make it public. It is evident, then, that there should be laws concerning education, and that it should be public. Chapter 2 What Education Is and how children ought to be instructed, is what should be well known. For there are doubts concerning the business of it, as all people do not agree in those things they would have a child taught, both with respect to their improvement in virtue and a happy life. Nor is it clear whether the object of it should be to improve the reason or rectify the morals. From the present mode of education, we cannot determine with certainty to which men incline, whether to instruct a child in what will be useful to him in life, or what tends to virtue and what is excellent. 
for all these things have their separate defenders. As to virtue, there is no particular in which they all agree. For as all do not equally esteem all virtues, it reasonably follows that they will not cultivate the same. It is evident that what is necessary ought to be taught to all. But that which is necessary for one is not necessary for all. For there ought to be a distinction between the employment of a freeman and a slave. The first of these should be taught everything useful which will not make those who know it mean. Every work is to be esteemed me, and every art and every discipline which renders the body, the mind, or the understanding of free men unfit for the habit and practice of virtue. For which reason all those arts which tend to deform the body are called me, and all those employments which are exercised for gain. For they take off from the freedom of the mind and render it sordid. There are also some liberal arts which are not improper for free men to apply to in a certain degree. But to endeavor to acquire a perfect skill in them is exposed to the faults I have just mentioned. For there is a great deal of difference in the reason for which anyone does or learns anything. For it is not a liberal to engage in it for oneself, one's friend, or in the cause of virtue. While, at the same time, to do it for the sake of another may seem to be acting the part of a servant and a slave. The mode of instruction which now prevails seems to partake of both pots. Chapter 3 There are four things which it is usual to teach children reading, gymnastic exercises, and music, to which in the fourth place some add painting. Reading and painting are both of them of singular use in life, and gymnastic exercises as productive of courage. As to music, some persons may doubt, as most persons now use it for the sake of pleasure. But those who originally made it part of education did it because, as has been already said, nature requires that we should not only be properly employed, but to be able to enjoy leisure honorably. For this to repeat what I have already said is of all things the principle. But, though both labor and rest are necessary, yet the latter is preferable to the first. And by all means we ought to learn what we should do when at rest. For we ought not to employ that time at play. For then play would be the necessary business of our lives. But if this cannot be, play is more necessary for those who labor than those who are at rest. For he who labors requires relaxation, which play will supply. For as labor is attended with pain and continued exertion, it is necessary that play should be introduced under proper regulations as a medicine. For such an employment of the mind is a relaxation to it and eases with pleasure. Now rest itself seems to partake of pleasure, of happiness, and an agreeable life. But this cannot be theirs who labor, but theirs who are at rest. For he who labors, labors for the sake of some end which he has not. But happiness is an end which all persons think is attended with pleasure and not with pain. 
but all persons do not agree in making this pleasure consist in the same thing. For each one has his particular standard, correspondent to his own habits. But the best man proposes the best pleasure, and that which arises from the noblest actions. But it is evident that to live a life of rest there are some things which a man must learn and be instructed in, and that the object of this learning and this instruction centers in their acquisition. But the learning and instruction which is given for labor has for its object other things, for which reason the ancients made music a part of education, not as a thing necessary, for it is not of that nature, nor as a thing useful, as reading in the common course of life, or for managing of a family, or for learning anything as useful in public life. Painting also seems useful to enable a man to judge more accurately of the productions of the finer arts. More is it like the gymnastic exercises, which contribute to health and strength. For neither of these things do we see produced by music. There remains for it then to be the employment of our rest, which they had in view who introduced it, and thinking it a proper employment for free men, to them they allotted it. As Homer sings, how right to call Thalia to the feast, and of some others he says, the bard was cow, to ravish every year, and in another place, he makes Ulysses say the happiest part of man's life is, when at the festal board, in order plaque, they hear the song. It is evident, then, that there is a certain education in which a child may be instructed, not as useful nor as necessary, but as noble and liberal. But whether this is one or more than one, and of what sort they are, and how to be taught, shall be considered hereafter. We are now got so far on our way as to show that we have the testimony of the ancients in our favor, by what they have delivered down upon education for music makes this plain. Moreover, it is necessary to instruct children in what is useful, not only on account of its being useful in itself, as, for instance, to learn to read, but also as the means of acquiring other different sorts of instruction. Thus they should be instructed in painting, not only to prevent their being mistaken in purchasing pictures or in buying or selling of vases, but rather as it makes them judges of the beauties of the human form. For to be always hunting after the profitable ill agrees with great and freeborn souls, as it is evident whether a boy should be first taught morals or reasoning and whether his body or his understanding should be first cultivated. It is plain that boys should be first put under the care of the different masters of the gymnastic arts, both to form their bodies and teach them their exercises. Chapter 4 Now those states which seem to take the greatest care of their children's education bestow their chief attention on wrestling, though it both prevents the increase of the body and hurts the form of it. This fault the Lacedaemonians did not fall into, for they made their children fierce by painful labor, as chiefly useful to inspire them with courage. Though, as we have already often said, 
This is neither the only thing nor the principal thing necessary to attend to. And even with respect to this, they may not thus attain their end. For we do not find either in other animals or other nations that courage necessarily attends the most cruel, but rather the milder and those who have the dispositions of lions. For there are many people who are eager both to kill men and to devour human flesh, as the Achaeans and Hinyachi and Pantus, and many others in Asia, some of whom are as bad, others worse than these, who indeed live by tyranny, but are men of no courage. Nay, we know that the Lacedaemonians themselves, while they continued those painful labors, and were superior to all others, though now they are inferior to many, both in war and gymnastic exercises, did not acquire their superiority by training their youth to these exercises, but because those who were disciplined opposed those who were not disciplined at all. What is fair and honorable ought then to take place in education of what is fierce and cruel. For it is not a wolf, nor any other wild beast, which will brave any noble danger, but rather good man so that those who permit boys to engage too earnestly in these exercises, while they do not take care to instruct them in what is necessary to do, to speak the real truth, render them mean and vile, accomplished only in one duty of a citizen, and in every other respect, as reason evinces, good for nothing. Nor should we form our judgments from past events, but from what we see at present. For now they have rivals in their mode of education, whereas formerly they had not. That gymnastic exercises are useful, and in what manner, is admitted. For during youth it is very proper to go through a course of those which are most gentle, omitting that violent diet and those painful exercises which are prescribed as necessary that they may not prevent the growth of the body. And it is no small proof that they have this effect, that amongst the Olympic candidates we can scarce find two or three who have gained a victory both when boys and men. Because the necessary exercises they went through when young deprived them of their strength, when they have allotted three years from the time of puberty to other parts of education, they are then of a proper age to submit to labor and a regulated diet. For it is impossible for the mind and body both to labor at the same time, as they are productive of contrary evils to each other. The labor of the body preventing the progress of the mind and the mind of the body. Chapter 5 with respect to music, we have already spoken a little in a doubtful manner upon the subject. It will be proper to go over again more particularly what we then said, which may serve as an introduction to what any other person may choose to offer the wrong. For it is no easy matter to distinctly point out what power it has, nor on what accounts one should apply it, whether as an amusement and refreshment, as sleep or wine as these are nothing serious but pleasing, and the killers of care, as Euripides says. 
for which reason they class in the same order and use for the same purpose all these, namely, sleep, wine, and music, to which some add dancing. Or shall we rather suppose that music tends to be productive of virtue, having a power, as the gymnastic exercises have to form the body in a certain way, to influence the manners so as to accustom its professors to rejoice rightly? Or shall we say, that it is of any service in the conduct of life, and an assistant to prudence. For this also is a third property which has been attributed to it. Now that boys are not to be instructed in it as play is evident. For those who learn don't play, for to learn is rather troublesome. Neither is it proper to permit boys at their age to enjoy perfect leisure. For to cease to improve is by no means fit for what is as yet imperfect. But it may be thought that the earnest attention of boys in this art is for the sake of that amusement they will enjoy when they come to be men and completely form. But, if this is the case, why are they themselves to learn it, and not follow the practice of the kings of the Medes and Persians, who enjoy the pleasure of music by hearing others play? and being shown its beauties by them. For of necessity those must be better skilled therein who make this science their particular study and business, than those who have only spent so much time at it as was sufficient just to learn the principles of it. But if this is a reason for a child's being taught anything, they are also to learn the art of cookery, but this is absurd. The same doubt occurs if music has a power of improving the manners. For why should they on this account themselves learn it, and not reap every advantage of regulating the passions or forming the judgment on the merits of the performance by hearing others, as the Lacedaemonians? For they, without having ever learned music, are yet able to judge accurately what is good and what is bad. The same reasoning may be applied if music is supposed to be the amusement of those who live an elegant and easy life. Why should they learn themselves, and not rather enjoy the benefit of others' skill? Let us here consider what is our belief of the immortal gods in this particular. Now we find the poets never represent Jupiter himself as singing and playing. Nay, we ourselves treat the professors of these arts as mean people and say that no one would practice them but a drunkard or a buffoon. But probably we may consider this subject more at large hereafter. The first question is, whether music is or is not to make a part of education, and of those three things which have been assigned as its proper employment, which is the right, is it to instruct, to amuse, or to employ the vacant hours of those who live at rest? or may not all three be properly allotted to it, for it appears to partake of them all. For play is necessary for relaxation, and relaxation pleasant, as it is a medicine for that uneasiness which arises from labor. It is admitted also that a happy life must be an honorable one, and a pleasant one too, since happiness consists in both these. And we all agree that music is one of the most pleasing things, whether alone or accompanied with a voice. As Musius says, music's the sweetest joy of man. 
for which reason it is justly admitted into every company and every happy life, as having the power of inspiring joy, so that from this any one may suppose that it is necessary to instruct young persons in it. For all those pleasures which are harmless are not only conducive to the final end of life, but serve also as relaxations, and as men are but rarely in the attainment of that final end, they often cease from their labor and apply to amusement, with no further view than to acquire the pleasure attending it. It is therefore useful to enjoy such pleasures as these. There are some persons who make play and amusement their end, and probably that end has some pleasure annexed to it, but not what should be. But while men seek the one, they accept the other for it. Because there is some likeness in human actions to the end. For the end is pursued for the sake of nothing else that attends it, but for itself only. And pleasures like these are sought for, not on account of what follows them, but on account of what has gone before them, as labor and grief. For which reason they seek for happiness in these sort of pleasures. And that this is the reason any one may easily perceive, that music should be pursued, not on this account only, but also as it is very serviceable during the hours of relaxation from labor, probably no one doubts. We should also inquire whether besides this use it may not also have another of nobler nature, and we ought not only to partake of the common pleasure arising from it which all have the sensation of, for music naturally gives pleasure, therefore the use of it is agreeable to all ages and all dispositions, but also to examine if it tends anything to improve our manners and our souls. And this will be easily known if we feel our dispositions any way influenced thereby, and that they are so is evident from many other instances, as well as the music at the Olympic Games. And this confessly fills the soul with enthusiasm. But enthusiasm is an affection of the soul which strongly agitates the disposition. Besides, all those who hear any imitations sympathize therewith, and this when they are conveyed even without rhythm or verse. Moreover, as music is one of those things which are pleasant, and as virtue itself consists in rightly enjoying, loving, and hating, it is evident that we ought not to learn or accustom ourselves to anything so much as to judge right and rejoice in honorable manners and noble actions. But anger and mildness, courage and modesty, and their contraries, as well as all other dispositions of the mind, are most naturally imitated by music and poetry, which is plain by experience. For when we hear these, our very soul is altered, and he who is affected either with joy or grief by the imitation of any objects is in very nearly the same situation as if he was affected by the objects themselves. Thus, if any person is pleased with seeing a statue of any one on no other account but its beauty, it is evident that the sight of the original from whence it was taken would also be pleasing. Now it happens in the other senses there is no imitation of manners, that is to say, in the touch and the taste. 
in the objects of sight, a very little, for these are merely representations of things, and the perceptions which they excite are in a manner common to all. Besides, statues and paintings are not properly imitations of manners, but rather signs and marks which show the body is affected by some passion. However, the difference is not great. Yet young men ought not to view the paintings of Pauso, but of Polygnotus, or any other painter or statuary who expresses manners. But in poetry and music, there are imitations of manners. And this is evident, for different harmonies differ from each other so much by nature, that those who hear them are differently affected, and are not in the same disposition of mind when one is performed as when another is. The one, for instance, occasions grief and contracts the soul, as the mixed Lydian. Others soften the mind, and as it were dissolve the heart. Others fix it in a firm and settled state. Such is the power of the Doric music only. While the Phrygian fills the soul with enthusiasm, as has been well described by those who have written philosophically upon this part of education, for they bring examples of what they advance from the things themselves. The same holds true with respect to rhythm. Some fix the disposition, others occasion a change in it. Some act more violently, others more liberally. From what has been said, it is evident what an influence music has over the disposition of the mind, and how variously it can fascinate it. And if it can do this, most certainly it is what you thought to be instructed in, and indeed the learning of music is particularly adapted to their disposition. For at their time of life they do not willingly attend to anything which is not agreeable. But music is naturally one of the most agreeable things, and there seems to be a certain connection between harmony and rhythm for which reason some wise men held the soul itself to be harmony, others that it contains it. Chapter 6 We will now determine whether it is proper that children should be taught to sing and play upon any instrument, which we have before made a matter of doubt. Now, it is well known that it makes a great deal of difference when you would qualify anyone in any art for the person himself to learn the practical part of it. For it is a thing very difficult, if not impossible, for a man to be a good judge of what he himself cannot do. It is also very necessary that children should have some employment which will amuse them for which reason the rattle of Ocidus seems well contrived, which they give children to play with, to prevent their breaking those things which are about the house, for at their age they cannot sit still. This therefore is well adapted to infants, as instruction ought to be their rattle as they grow up. Hence it is evident that they should be so taught music as to be able to practice it nor is it difficult to say what is becoming or unbecoming of their age, or to answer the objections which some make to this employment as mean and low. In the first place, it is necessary for them to practice, that they may be judges of the art. 
for which reason this should be done when they are young. But when they are grown older, the practical part may be dropped. While they will still continue judges of what is excellent in the art, and take a proper pleasure therein, from the knowledge they acquired of it in their youth, as to the censure which some persons throw upon music, as something mean and low, it is not difficult to answer that, if we will but consider how far we propose those who are to be educated so as to become good citizens should be instructed in this art, and what music and what rhythms they should be acquainted with, and also what instruments they should play upon. For in these there is probably a difference. Such then is the proper answer to that censure. For it must be admitted that in some cases nothing can prevent music being attended to a certain degree with the bad effects which are ascribed to it. It is therefore clear that the learning of it should never prevent the business of riper years, nor render the body effeminate and unfit for the business of war or the state, but it should be practiced by the young, judged of by the old, that children may learn music properly. It is necessary that they should not be employed in those parts of it which are the objects of dispute between the masters in that science, nor should they perform such pieces as are wondered at from the difficulty of their execution, and which, from being first exhibited in the public games, are now become a part of education. But let them learn so much of it as to be able to receive proper pleasure from excellent music and rhythms. And not that only which music must make all animals feel, and also slaves and boys, but more. It is therefore plain what instruments they should use. Thus, they should never be taught to play upon the flute, or any other instrument which requires great skill, as the harp or the like, but on such as will make them good judges of music, or any other instruction. Besides, the flute is not a moral instrument, but rather one that will inflame the passions, and is therefore rather to be used when the soul is to be animated than when instruction is intended. Let me add also, that there is something therein which is quite contrary to what education requires. As the player on the flute is prevented from speaking, for which reason our forefathers very properly forbade the use of it to youth and free men, though they themselves at first used it. For when their riches procured them greater leisure, they grew more animated in the cause of virtue, and both before and after the Median War, their noble actions so exalted their minds that they attended to every part of education, selecting no one in particular, but endeavoring to collect the whole, for which reason they introduced the flute also as one of the instruments they were to learn to play on. At Lacedaemon, the Corrigus himself played on the flute, and it was so common at Athens that almost every freeman understood it, as is evident from the tablet which Thrasippus dedicated when he was Corrigus. But afterwards they rejected it as dangerous, having become better judges of what tended to promote virtue and what did not. For the same reason many of the ancient instruments were thrown aside as the dulcimer and the lyre, 
as also those which were to inspire those who played on them with pleasure, and which required nice finger and great skill to play well on. What the ancients tell us, by way of fable, of the flute is indeed very rational. Namely, that after Minerva had found it, she threw it away. Nor are they wrong who say that the goddess disliked it for deforming the face of him who played thereon. Not but that it is more probable that she rejected it as the knowledge thereof contributed nothing to the improvement of the mind. Now, we regard Minerva as the inventress of arts and sciences. As we disapprove of a child's being taught to understand instruments, and to play like a master which we would have confined to those who are candidates for the prize in that science. For they play not to improve themselves in virtue, but to please those who hear them, and gratify their importunity. Therefore we think the practice of it unfit for free men, but then it should be confined to those who are paid for doing it. For it usually gives people sordid notions, for the end they have in view is bad. For you input in and spectator is accustomed to make them change their music. So that the artists who attend to him regulate their bodies according to his motions. Chapter 7 We are now to enter into an inquiry concerning harmony and rhythm. Whether all sorts of these are to be employed in education, or whether some peculiar ones are to be selected, and also whether we should give the same directions to those who are engaged in music as part of education, or whether there is something different from these two. Now, as all music consists in melody and rhythm, we ought not to be unacquainted with the power which each of these has in education, and whether we should rather choose music in which melody prevails or rhythm. But when I consider how many things have been well written upon these subjects, not only by some musicians of the present age, but also by some philosophers who are perfectly skilled in that part of music which belongs to education, we will refer those who desire a very particular knowledge therein to those writers, and shall only treat of it in general terms without descending to particulars. Melody is divided by some philosophers whose notions we approve of into moral, practical, and that which fills the mind with enthusiasm. They also allot to each of these a particular kind of harmony which naturally corresponds therewith. And we say that music should not be applied to one purpose only, but many, both for instruction and purifying the soul now I use the word purifying at present without any explanation, but shall speak more at large of it in my poetics. And in the third place, as an agreeable manner of spending the time and a relaxation from the uneasiness of the mind, it is evident that all harmonies are to be used, but not for all purposes, but the most moral in education, but to please the ear when others play the most active and enthusiastic. For that passion which is to be found very strong in some souls is to be met with also in all. But the difference in different persons consists in its being in a less or greater degree as pity, fear, 
and enthusiasm also, which latter is so powerful in some as to overpower the soul. And yet we see those persons, by the application of sacred music to soothe their mind, rendered as sedate and composed as if they had employed the art of the physician. And this must necessarily happen to the compassionate, the fearful, and all those who are subdued by their passions. Nay, all persons, as far as they are affected with those passions, admit of the same cure and are restored to tranquility with pleasure. In the same manner, all music which has the power of purifying the soul affords a harmless pleasure to man. Such, therefore, should be the harmony and such the music which those who contend with each other in the theater should exhibit. But as the audience is composed of two sorts of people, the free and the well-instructed, the rude, the mean mechanics, and hired servants, and a long collection of the like, there must be some music and some spectacles to please and soothe them. For as their minds are as it were perverted from their natural habits, so also is there an unnatural harmony, an overcharged music which is accommodated to their taste. But what is according to nature gives pleasure to everyone, therefore those who are to contend upon the theater should be allowed to use this species of music. But in education, ethic melody and ethic harmony should be used, which is the Doric, as we have already said, or any other which those philosophers who are skillful in that music which is to be employed in education shall approve of. But Socrates, in Plato's Republic, is very wrong when he permits only the Phrygian music to be used as well as the Doric, particularly as amongst other instruments he banishes the flute. For the Phrygian music has the same power in harmony as the flute has amongst the instruments. For they are both pathetic and raise the mind, and this the practice of the poets proves. For in their bacchanal songs, or whenever they describe any violent emotions of the mind, the flute is the instrument they chiefly use. And the Phrygian harmony is most suitable to these subjects. Now, that the dithyramic measure is Phrygian is allowed by general consent. And those who are conversant in studies of this sort bring many proofs of it. As for instance, when Philoxenus endeavored to compose dithyramic music for Doric harmony, he naturally fell back again into Phrygian, as being fittest for that purpose. As everyone indeed agrees, that the Doric music is most serious, and fittest to inspire courage. And as we always commend the middle as being between the two extremes, and the Doric has this relation with respect to other harmonies, it is evident that is what the youth thought to be instructed in. There are two things to be taken into consideration, both what is possible and what is proper. Everyone then should chiefly endeavor to attain those things which contain both these qualities. But this is to be regulated by different times of life. For instance, it is not easy for those who are advanced in years to sing such pieces of music as require very high notes, for nature points out to them those which are gentle and require little strength of voice for which reason some who are skillful in music 
justly find fault with Socrates for forbidding the youth to be instructed in gentle harmony, as if, like wine, it would make them drunk, whereas the effect of that is to render men bacchanals and not make them languid. These therefore are what should employ those who are grown old. Moreover, if there is any harmony which is proper for a child's age, as being at the same time elegant and instructive, as the Lydian of all others seems chiefly to be these, then are as it were the three boundaries of education, moderation, possibility, and decorum. End of Politics by Aristotle. Don't forget to like this video and subscribe to Chill Books for more. Chill Books. Audiobooks with relaxing music, visuals, and subtitles to help you stay engaged.